At this point, having covered the imperial and Soviet layers of official paranoia, we jump decades forward to the 1991 collapse of the USSR. For those too young to remember, a surprisingly friendly-seeming man with a ketchup stain on his forehead oversaw the final collapse of Reagan's evil empire. Then, a friendly drunken bear named Boris took over, and the U.S. and its allies breathed a huge sigh of relief as became painfully clear that the communist colossus we had all grown up fearing was at this point hanging out on the side of the road with a will-trade-nukes-for-food sign. Which again, at the time, seemed like a great turn of events for your young person in the U.S. of A., where failing to foresee easily foreseeable consequences is kind of a national pastime. Next, a bunch of Western economists and technocrats flooded into the zone, intent on shaken-baking Russia into a modern, democratic state with a healthy market economy. Then, the government sold off huge state-owned industries to whatever bureaucrats or gangsters could cobble together a few million in hard currency, and the famous Russian oligarchs were born. This wasn't exactly supposed to happen, per the Western experts. All Russians were supposed to benefit from the privatizing of their industries equally. But, you know, that, like, never happens. Ever. So, no big surprise. And the whole democracy thing kind of ran aground on the shoals of endemic corruption by essentially everyone in the government, definitely including President Boris Yeltsin. And somewhere in the middle there, there's this attempted coup by some of the old commies, where Yeltsin stands on a tank and then that goes away. I admire the brevity of the summary, but I think it's probably a bit lacking in strict accuracy and historical nuance. Sure, sure. But the point is, now we get to the end of the decade. It's late 1998. Yeltsin is a shell of a man, his vigor sapped by alcohol and related health problems. He's struggling to figure out how to stay in power and avoid prosecution for corruption when he does leave office in a year or so. His advisors hit upon the idea of promoting the head of the FSB, that's supposed Soviet version of the KGB, to prime minister, anointing him Yeltsin's chosen successor and then tilting the electoral scales even further by having Yeltsin step down and let the guy become acting president for the next year, even as he's running for that office. The beauty of the plan, from the perspective of the pro-democracy forces who were advising Yeltsin, was that the guy they were backing was a total nobody, a personality-free cipher, whom they all felt could be manipulated into doing whatever he was told. He's acting like y'all don't know the name of this dude, but, spoiler alert, it's Mr. Shirtless on horseback, the guy with a hard-on for bombing the shit out of Ukraine. We do need a bit of additional context. Do we, or can you just not stop yourself? Often it's option B, but in this case we really do need to go over this topic for the rest of the story to make sense. One of the increasingly intractable nightmare scenarios unspooling over the 1990s was the ongoing turmoil in Chechnya, a region that Russia considers part of its territory, but that, for a number of reasons, didn't love Russia back. The main sticking point being that the majority Muslim population has felt like it's been suppressed and dominated by Russian Christian society, but only since like the 18th century. True, but in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, when all kinds of ethnic enclaves were carving out various levels of independence from the Russian monolith, the Chechens took their shot, leading to the First Chechen Civil War, which Yeltsin oversaw from 94 to 96, which resulted in the Chechens essentially giving up their independence cause in exchange for some degree of autonomy. However, in April 1999, a group of Chechens slipped into neighboring Dagestan in support of an Islamist separatist group in that region. By early September, the Russian forces had pretty much quashed that uprising, sending the Chechens back across their borders. When suddenly... A series of bombings spread over three weeks, targeted civilians across Russia, killing hundreds of innocent people and sending a wave of fear throughout the country. And here we turn to Masha Gessen. Their book... A quick aside for grammar fanatics. 
Yes, we know we just referred to Masha Gessen, singular human, by the pronoun they. We did that because that's how Masha Gessen wants us to refer to them. Jesuit wants you to know that, as a cranky middle-aged grammar snob, this hits his ear weirdly too. But you know what hits his ear even worse? Disrespecting people's self-identification. In the immortal words of a great fictional boxer to a waning but still scary Soviet Union. If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change! Except, you know, substitute Jesuit for Stallone there. You get it. Damn straight. Also, I want you to know we double-check all of our references in Flights of Fancy to make sure we don't reuse them. We checked our archive scripts for that Rocky quote. And yes, we found we had already used it. In another QAnon script, funnily enough. So, if you're as fanatical as we are about this stuff, just know that we realized that, and we used it anyway. Because... USA, 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 USA. Back to Gessen. Their book picks up the story in 1999. The author, a native Russian whose family had emigrated to the U.S. during Gessen's teenage years, had returned to the motherland in the 90s to report on the nation's post-Soviet development. One morning, they hear a surprising suggestion from their editor. You know, some people are saying that FSB is behind the bombings. My editor, one of the smartest people I knew, said to me when I walked in one afternoon in September 1999, do you believe it? The narrative goes on to explain the carnage that this rumor was laying at the feet of the nation's secret police force. For three weeks, Moscow and other Russian cities had been terrorized by a series of explosions. The first occurred on August 31st in a crowded shopping mall in the center of Moscow. One person died and more than 30 people were injured. Five days later, an explosion brought down a large part of an apartment block in the southern city of Buynaksk, not far from Chechnya. 64 people were killed and 146 injured. But all of the building's residents were Russian military officers and their families. So, although the dead included 23 children, the blast did not have the effect of making civilians, especially civilians living in Moscow, feel vulnerable and scared. Four days later, however, at two seconds before midnight on September 8th, a giant blast sounded in a bedroom neighborhood outside Moscow's city center. A densely populated concrete city block was ripped in half, two of its stairwells, 72 apartments in total, completely obliterated. Exactly 100 people died. Nearly 700 more were injured. Five days later, another explosion brought down another building on the outskirts of Moscow. The blast came at five in the morning, which meant that most residents were home at the time. Almost all of them were killed. 124 people were dead and seven injured. Three days after that, on September 16, a truck blew up on the street in Volgodonsk, a city in southern Russia. 19 people died, and over a 1,000 were injured. Yes, the unthinkable idea is that the FSB, seeking to tip the scales in favor of their former head, a man running for the presidential post he was already acting in, deliberately set off a series of horrific attacks on its own population simply to rally the Russian people against the supposed Chechen perpetrators and position their boy Putin as the strong hand who would destroy these terrorist vermin, so long as the grateful Russian people returned the favor by electing him to the office he was already acting in. Now, we definitely don't want to say that there is a 100% we landed on the moon, vaccines don't cause autism, the world is round. <coughs> Oblate. Spheroid. Regardless, there's not that level of proof that Putin and his supporters are behind these attacks. And those of you who have been here for a while will recognize that we talked about this topic in our False Flags episode. At the time, we limited ourselves to noting that the reports about the FSB's involvement were credible. But having dived more deeply into the topic this time, we're finding it hard to see how any other explanation even makes sense. 
Especially, of course, when you factor in one other incident, examined in an early 2000s documentary by a then-independent Russian news channel that Gessen summarizes here. Just after 9 that evening, September 22nd, a bus driver for the local soccer team was returning home to a 12-story brick apartment building at 14 Novoselov Street. He saw a Russian-made car pull up to the building. A man and a woman got out and went in through a door leading to the cellar, while the driver, another man, stayed in the car. Kartofelnikov watched the man and the woman emerge a few minutes later. Then the car pulled right up to the cellar door, and all three unloaded heavy-looking sacks and carried them into the cellar. They all then returned to the car and left. By this time, four buildings had been blown up in Moscow and two other cities. Kartofelnikov called the police. The police arrived nearly 45 minutes later. Two officers entered the cellar, where they found three 50-kilogram sacks marked sugar, stacked one on top of another. Through a slit in the top sack, they could see wires and a clock. They ran out of the cellar to call for reinforcement and began evacuating residents from the 77 apartments in the building while the bomb squad was on its way. Even before all the residents had made it outside, the bomb squad had disabled the timer and analyzed the contents of the sacks. They concluded it was hexogen, a powerful explosive in use since World War II. It was also the substance used in at least one of the Moscow explosions, so the entire country had learned the word hexogen from an announcement made by the mayor of Moscow. The crudely made detonation mechanism contained a clock set for 5.30 in the morning. The terrorist plan was apparently exactly the same as in the Moscow explosions. The amount of explosive would have destroyed the building entirely, and possibly damaged nearby structures, killing all residents in their sleep. So, feel-good story. Citizen vigilance stops a potential tragedy. But as you might expect, it doesn't end there. Soon after the incident, the FSB held a press conference where they announced that bags full of wires and material that had positively tested as high explosives were actually just bags of sugar, and the whole thing was a training exercise. Which explanation nobody believed. Like, even the guy delivering this nonsense at the press conference couldn't seem to bring himself to pretend to believe it. And suddenly, it made it seem likely instead that maybe that foiled bombing, like all of the other bombings, was not executed by Chechen terrorists, but rather by secret police Putin backers. We're not talking out of our hat here, asked David Satter, a journalist who spent decades reporting on Russia, only to be expelled for his reporting on this story. There was an enormous amount of material in the Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta, uh, which pointed to the possibility and, in fact, the likelihood that the authorities themselves blew up those buildings. I, I asked for documents from the CIA, from the FBI, uh, from the Directorate of National Intelligence, from the State Department. I got very, very little that was of any use, but I did get a few documents from the State Department which indicated that their sources of information were telling them that the apartment bombings were extremely suspicious. You had to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to see what was going on. And in particular, you had to be willfully ignorant if you didn't see the implications of the Riazan incident in which three FSB agents were arrested for putting a fifth bomb in a building. Even though the bomb didn't go off, it was a live bomb. What was it doing in the basement of an apartment building?
And it's not just expelled American journalists who have made these allegations. A former FSB officer named Alexander Litvinenko escaped to London in 2000 and wrote a couple of books on the subject. His strong, well-backed allegations, coming as they did from a former agent, definitely made the Putin regime look bad. Plus, he was on the verge of testifying in a Spanish court about the Russian government's high-level ties to organized crime. Which is why Putin and company probably breathed a sigh of relief when the healthy 44-year-old suddenly fell sick and died. And? What? It sounds like you're leaving something out there. Why did this healthy man suddenly fall ill? Oh, it's the sort of thing that could happen to anyone. See, apparently he was offered a cup of tea in a meeting with some Russian guys, and somehow he managed to ingest some polonium-210, which is a radioactive substance that subsequent investigations determined to an absolute certainty could only have come from one place in Russia, specifically the town of Sardov. Jesus. Yeah, Putin's a go-along-get-along dude. Gessen's book is actually an excellent resource for understanding the man, and we recommend it wholeheartedly. It offers insights into Putin that we haven't heard elsewhere. For example, his weird insistence that his heavily stage-managed biography must promote stories from his childhood and youth in which his most thuggish tendencies are emphasized. Apparently being seen as a brute is a big part of his popularity. Gessen also covers some interesting details about a confusing aspect of Putin's nature. He would ostentatiously refuse all sorts of small bribes that are kind of seen as par for the course in Russian political life, but then subsequently, when he had a chance to steal something huge or unique, he just couldn't seem to stop himself, no matter how blatant the theft. You may recall the bizarre but true Super Bowl ring scandal. Tonight, Putin's aides are denying he stole a diamond-encrusted Super Bowl ring from New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft. The two met in 2005. Both sides agree that Kraft showed him his Super Bowl bling, reportedly worth over $25,000. They also agree that Putin left with it. Kraft issued a statement at the time saying he gave Putin the ring as a gift, a sign of friendship with the Russian people. But on Thursday, Kraft revealed what he says is the real truth. He says he handed Putin the ring to look at, and remembers the former KGB spy saying, I could kill someone with this ring. Then, according to Kraft, the Russian president pocketed it. All 4.94 carats. All 124 diamonds. Kraft says he called it a gift only after pressure from the White House. And we could chalk this up to misunderstanding. Except, as Gessen demonstrates, it fits in neatly with the man's high-level kleptomania. Their book is an incredible read about a strange, twisted, power-and-money-hungry weirdo, which we highly recommend. Now that we've established the character of the guy at the top of the government in Russia, we want to take a closer look at the culture that he and his sycophants and enablers have shaped over the past 23 years. Yes, we know he wasn't technically the president for four of those years, but that just amounts to some musical chairs where he handpicked his successor, Medvedev, who then appointed Putin prime minister. Medvedev, the new president, deferred to his prime minister and retired after one term in 2012, replaced by one Vladimir Putin. So the point stands. Putin has dominated Russian politics for more than two decades. What has that done to the country? For answers, we return to our interview with Ilya Yablokov. One of the first things that struck us about his excellent book was the almost schizophrenic attitude that the Putin regime has toward the Soviet period. That is, they seem both to revere it and to see it as the result of interference by anti-Russian Western schemers. The revolution of 1991 was supposed to show the way for the Russian society to prosper under the democratic rules of the game. 
However, the collapse of the Soviet Union was also about the collapse of the national identity, also the collapse of the economic system, major systems that had to be rebuilt by the Russian establishment. They only managed to build one. Russian establishment managed to build a pretty good working market economy, which became less market economy by the 20th year of Putin's rule in the Kremlin. The two nation and political systems were absolutely shattered. They were destroyed and nobody replaced them. Nobody rebuilt them. Neither Yeltsin nor Putin, neither Medvedev have created a properly working political system. As a result, Russia was kind of shaking from being democratic or trying to mimic the democratic procedures. Not anymore. But at the same time, they tried to create a majority of people that would support the current regime. And here, let's go back to 1917. The collapse of the empire that was gradually replaced by the belief in the Soviets, in the socialist and the communist values. The Bolsheviks created some sort of new identity by getting rid of the previous identity of imperial Russia. Eventually, they collapsed the state first, but then they rebuilt it, especially under Joseph Stalin. When it comes to Vladimir Putin, especially in 2010, on the one hand, Putin says, we don't need the revolution. We don't want our country to be destroyed by yet another revolution. That's what we read between the lines. We need to destroy all those system of political checks and balances and the principles of the democratic state because they can let us rule the country forever. And we should not be really worried about transparency and fairness that eventually put Vladimir Putin in the mousetrap if you destroy principles of the democratic state. And if you say that we don't need a revolution, you create this revolution yourself because you unleash those powers that will come and destroy you once your system makes a fatal mistake. If we look at 2017, the centenary of the Bolshevik revolution of the Russian revolution, we're going to see zero celebrations of the Russian, of the Bolshevik revolution, because for the regime, everything that has the word revolution is actually a threat, because revolution makes the state weak, and that's the biggest fear of the so-called Russian patriot. That's why this notion of revolution of 1917 that helped build the Soviet Union, that is one of the biggest paradoxes. Hating the Russian Revolution because the regime and those intellectuals loyal to the regime also hate it. But in many ways, they do not realize that their own identity is in many ways shaped by the 1917 revolution. They like some bits of the Soviet Union that talk about the greatness, but at the same time, they cut out all the elements of the Soviet past that might question how they see the Russian Empire as a great state that only did good things to people, Ukrainians included. So Putin has been unable to create a new national identity and thus has to hearken back to the relative glories of the USSR when Russia was at the center of global power politics. 
But at the same time, he has to resist anything to do with glorification of the Russian Revolution that brought the Bolsheviks to power, because the concept of revolution might give people ideas. Exactly. And who helps Putin walk this narrow rhetorical line? His cadre of pro-government intellectuals, who are more than willing to come up with justifications for everything from anti-LGBTQ legislation to the invasion of Ukraine. As Yablokov's book points out, Russia had, until recent years, stood in stark contrast to the United States in terms of its elites and their relationship to conspiracy theorizing. In Russia, it's elites doing the conspiracy spreading, while in the U.S., conspiracies have traditionally been more of a grassroots phenomenon that elites would work to tamp down or deride. Of course, since the book was published, a lot has changed. My book was written in 2017, five years ago. At that time, I stated the difference between Russia and the U.S. in the way conspiratorial propaganda is spread is in the United States, conspiracy theories grow from the grassroots level. QAnon is one of those examples. In Russia, most of the mainstream conspiracy theories are actually top-down. They come from the level of the elites and spread around the population. When Donald Trump came to power, I said, well, actually, that's quite interesting. It's actually the first time when such a crazy fan of conspiracy theories is at the head of the United States. At the same time, the coronavirus case in Russia shows that conspiracy theories can quickly grow from the grassroots level and get hold of millions of minds thanks to social networks. And they can actually challenge the elites. Russia's government attempt to introduce these QR codes, mass vaccination against COVID. Millions of people started writing on social networks, started pushing all sorts of conspiracy theories about the coronavirus, about accusing the Kremlin to, in attempt to kill the Russians by coronavirus jabs. So as a result, the Kremlin really backed down. And so in that case, the elites are not relevant anymore. So in that case, Russia becomes so similar to Germany, to France, and to the United States, because this important role of intellectual elite that can shape the conspiratorial argument and cunningly put it through, it doesn't work anymore. No matter how strong Putin is and the media and the propaganda, Russians have this inherent tradition of mistrust to the government in the things that concern their own very real, very personal problems. And this is the limitation of propaganda. Despite their no longer having a monopoly on the production of conspiracy theories, the Russian elites do still spawn their fair share. And much of Yablokov's book is dedicated to exploring the different flavors of conspiracy that have waxed and waned there over the past couple of decades. Much of the conspiracy production has, of course, been aimed at supporting the regime and turning the population against its designated enemies. One of the first groups targeted was non-governmental organizations, or NGOs. These groups, typically run by liberal-leaning Russians with outside, i.e. Western, funding, were originally welcomed in the immediate post-Soviet period, but as the government turned increasingly authoritarian, they became an easy target against which to focus Russians' free-floating anxieties. When the Soviet Union collapsed, it was very helpful to have foreign companies and foreign funds. In many ways, NGOs helped taking the responsibilities of the state 
in those areas where the state was incapable of actually resolving these problems. As a result, NGOs became important actors, promoting this idea that, well, actually, people can have grassroots activities together, you know, kind of horizontal networks. When Putin decided to run for another term, the first target of Kremlin's propaganda became the NGO responsible for human rights. When Putin properly came to power in 2012, the Kremlin introduced a number of measures against the so-called foreign agents. The NGOs in 2010s were perceived as the first line of defense of the Russian civil society because they were able to provide resources and intelligence and support in defending the people from the state. If you manage to break those bonds between people, no one is going to stand against you. And that's why conspiracy theories first in the 2000s were used to muddy the waters around how they are funded, what are their real objectives in Russia. And then in 2010s, when the Kremlin was focused on making sure that, you know, we are going to rule this country forever, they just simply killed all the independent NGOs. And conspiracy theories help to justify, because when you say that the NGO is conspiring against you, is plotting against you, if NGO supports rights of LGBTQ people, then this is the NGO that actually works against us, because we Russians have always been against this. So conspiracy theories came really handy in destroying this first line of defense of Russian civil society. the demonization of NGOs demonstrates, the power of Russia's conspiracist elite lies in their ability to generate enemies against which Putin's government can be cast as the Russia-defending heroes. As this process has continued, the good and evil have become more broadly defined. Even back in 2007, some of these narratives had already totally collapsed the distinction between what Putin wants and what Russia is. Which again sounds just a little too much like the attitudes of some QAnon trust the plan Trump fans for our comfort. Consider this excerpt from the preface to a pro-Putin screed written way back in 2007 by one of the many lickspittle pro-Kremlin journalists who put together Vragi Putina, or Putin's enemies. Putin's regime carries out policies which respond to the aspirations of the nation to restore Russian power, which correspond to our political traditions and strengthen patriotism. It is not important why a person rejects Putin's regime and becomes its enemy. It is important that, in the current situation, this person automatically becomes an enemy of the state and the nation, and enemy of our motherland. That's some straight-up Kim Jong-un, Stalin, Pol Pot, der Führer shit right there. Which is why we asked the professor to elaborate on the point. It's a handbook of any authoritarian leader put 
the leader and the so-called majority, the invented majority, into one group and then put everyone who sort of is against what is happening into this cast of enemies. In 2007, it was the key moment when the Kremlin wanted to make sure that Putin stays in power, even though he will have to go. Remember, that's the period we discussed earlier, where Putin traded out for Medvedev so he could pretend he cared about the constitution of Russia. I remember how carefully spread those fears of conspiracy were, and how the Kremlin tried to scare as many people as possible who did not like Putin, who wanted to vote against him, that repressions will follow. Do not even try to challenge us. That was the message. The majority is with us. The majority is loyal to Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin is an embodiment of the Russian society. Because this is the bond that authoritarian and totalitarian propagandists usually make. It's a very populist trick, but it worked in Russia. It's not all scary, though. Some of these conspiracies are simply ridiculous. For example, there's the Dulles Plan, supposedly a Soviet-era U.S. National Security Council directive detailing our Cold War strategy for destroying the USSR by corrupting its people and morals. But of course, it's a forgery. Sounds a whole lot like our old enemy, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, doesn't it? I thought so too, but Professor Yablokov told us that's giving the Dulles Plan too much credit. It's a really short document that he describes as primitive in comparison to the protocols. Borenstein concurs, noting, The protocol's forgers at least had the decency to steal a written source in a foreign language. But whoever first came up with the Dulles Plan lifted it from one of the most popular spy novels and films of the Brezhnev era, Anatoly Ivanov's The Eternal Call. The Dulles Plan is a creation of the early post-Soviet national patriots. In Russia, they were called the Brown Forces. In many ways, they are the forefathers of today's pretty fascist anti-Western speakers and writers. This Dalit plan started to be quoted and published and referred to in various press publications and then in book publications. So gradually, the Dalit plan turned into common evidence that the West is against us. The Dalit plan states, for instance, we are going to destroy all their moral foundation. We're going to promote rock bands, which is going to destroy the mentality of their kids. We are going to destroy their belief in their rulers. So basically, whatever aspect of post-Soviet life you take, if you look at it from the conservative point of view, you will certainly see, well, yes, There's quite a lot of rock music, which is not necessarily loyal to the state. It criticizes the state, as rock music usually does. You're going to see lots of the things that the Dallas plan says, but as a conspiracy theory, it usually exaggerates, it twists the reality, it only gives half of facts, another half is, is hidden somewhere. So the Dallas plan, in that sense, became popular because it was reiterated by so many offers so many times that by the end of the 1990s and mid-2000s, the Dallas plan was like, well, of course, there's a Dallas plan. You know, like everyone is talking about that. Everyone is writing about that. 
Interestingly, Borenstein's book picks up the story from here, noting the impressive vitality of the Dulles plan as a pre-internet meme, and we're quoting him because this is fucking gold. From back in the days when memes had to walk 20 miles in the freezing cold before finding a gullible host to infect. Perfect. The Dulles plan was the first, probably dating back to the immediate post-Soviet period in the 90s. But he also calls out the popularity of the Harvard Project, which author Gregory Klimov claims to have worked on with the CIA until he had a change of heart. We're going to quote Borenstein directly for this next part because he has a real way with dismissive descriptions of conspiracy theories. If the Harvard Project were a living organism, we would say that it mated with its better-known cousin, the Dulles Plan, and gave birth to the Houston Project, but not before picking up a nasty hereditary bug known as the Golden Billion. And we were all set to explain to you what each of these plans means and how they are interlinked when we found out we didn't have to bother. Turns out there's a blockbuster film on the subject scheduled for summer 2023. Some big names are attached. And you have the script? Nah, don't need it. You know movie trailers these days. They give away the whole plot. Oh, Jesus, you're going to do another skit, aren't you? In a world where Russia is the last hope for humanity. Wait, Russia? In this world, the last hope of humanity is Russia? U.S. fantasies that you're going to save us all are ridiculous enough, but Russia? Come on, Dana, cut me some slack. Also, yes, that's what all of these various planned conspiracies are centered on. The core Russian messianic view of itself as the last hope of humanity, combined with a certainty that the West is trying to destroy it for precisely that reason. May I proceed? I'm just going to go put my fingers in my ears and say la-la-la-la-la until it's over. La 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 Deal. Okay, everyone. Places. And action. In a world where Russia is the last hope for humanity, evil running dog Secretary of State John Foster Dulles unveils to the heads of America's aggressive imperialist military his project for long-term anti-capitalist negation. Hey, that spells plan. Gentlemen. As we enter the new decade of the 1960s, we also enter the next phase of our evil plot against the Soviet Union, the world's only hope to escape the grinding heel of our mighty, exploitative capitalist war machine. We will cause the downfall of the most obstreperous nation on Earth. We will tear their country apart as we support and promote those so-called artists who will impose and imprint onto human consciousness the cult of sex, violence, sadism, treachery, impertinence and impudence, lies and deception, drunkenness and drug addiction. It will all blossom. We will bet on youth. We will corrupt, pervert, and degrade it. We will make them cynics, vulgarians, and cosmopolitans. That's how we'll do it. That's uh, great, sir. But this plan sounds a little light on the plan part. Could we talk specifics? No, no specifics. This one meandering, poorly thought-out paragraph I mostly copied from a Russian spy novel is everything you need. And just as you recover from the gripping drama of the USSR's valiant struggle against an evil paragraph, we take you to the 1980s, where a famous running dog bourgeois university unveils its secret three-volume plan to crush the vanguard of the global revolution. My fellow corrupt, debased Yankee academics, thank you for joining me at the unveiling of the culmination of our years of research. This three-volume plan for dismantling the Soviet state. Gentlemen, I give you the Harvard Plan. 
Will you be passing out copies to all of us? We will not, as the impressive tomes behind me are actually blank. It turns out the plan is really short. Instead, we will secretly be leaking a two-sentence summary of each volume to retired Russian General Konstantin Pavlovich Petrov via our contacts in Soviet intelligence. I'm sorry, you're what? That's right. We're so confident in our plan that we didn't actually write the books, and yet we will provide the basic outlines of the books we would have written to a Russian general, confident he won't be able to stop us even after he promotes them on a futuristic computer network we're calling the Internet in the first decade of the 21st century. Hold the phone, why on earth? Because he agreed not to publish them until long after the first two phases have been implemented, of course. So first, we'll explain our plan to install a puppet of our own evil capitalist regime as the premier of the Soviet Union, who will implement a restructuring, or perestroika, that will critically weaken the enemy under the guise of addressing long-standing institutional, economic, and human rights issues. We'll probably also give him a big red birthmark on his forehead. Dastardly! But how will you actually accomplish- Next, Volume 2. We'll install a hapless drunk when the USSR collapses, who will liquidate the party, the Red Army, hell, boys, while we're at it, the whole international socialist movement. Why not? Sky's the limit. That's the reform phase. What's this culmination in Volume 3? Well now, partner, that's where I come in. Yeah! Our friends from the energy sector have arrived. Glad you could make it. Please explain your coup de grace to these gentlemen. Well, I don't know about no cougars or coup grass or whatever smarty pants East Coast shit you said, buddy, but I do know one thing. Russia's got a whole mess of oil, and we need it. So since those Harvard boys turned over the third volume to us, the evil petrochemical industrial complex, we've started work on a long-term Houston plan to get one of our own Texas oil men elected as president of these here United States by the early 21st century. He's gonna help us break Russia up into little mini-states so that we can manhandle them and take all their oil. But all that skullduggery is just a cover for our real final plan. Thank you, Houston. I'll take it from here. Is that the golden billion? I thought she was just a myth. Gentlemen and ladies, please sit while I show you the beautiful intricacy of our end game. As we all know, the world is on the brink of an ecological catastrophe. By the 2030s, only a few years from now. Wait, didn't that scene start in the early 80s? We estimate that almost all the nations of the world will become uninhabitable due to global warming, among the many causes we've deliberately engineered. Leaving what nation? The one remaining livable area of the globe? Well, if we're talking warming, then probably a variety of colder climates like Canada or Norway or hell, Argentina will probably be better off than others. That's right. The only remaining habitable zone of humanity just happens to be Russia. Exactly. 
as we planned. I would not have bet on that, honestly. And that is where I will bring the one billion richest, most evil, debauched, western anti-Christian degenerates to sully the still fertile lands of Russia, displacing and murdering the innocent, scattered, helpless Russian people. And then we shall laugh and spit in the face of the Russian Orthodox God. <laughs> Who will stop this plan? Find out this July 4th, only in theaters. Rated S for stupid. Oh, it's finished. Oh, thank God. Yeah, really feel like we stuck that landing. In any case, as you've probably guessed, the gist of what you just heard is really how Russian conspiracists see these various made-up plans coming together. The literal breakup of the country into small, weak states to be overrun when the ecological apocalypse happens. And then the richest one billion capitalists will take over Russia, which will indeed be the only habitable area left on Earth. And damn it, Putin's not going to let that happen. No shit. points out how weirdly egotistical this set of conspiracies are. Russia is destined by providence to survive the coming apocalypse, but still the West, out of jealousy, plots to steal that destiny. Which ties into another conspiracist theme of Yablokov's book, the weird sort of chip-on-its-shoulder superiority complex that runs through many of the conspiracy-spreading Russian elite's theories. Emblematic of this tendency is the work of Natalia Naroshnitskaya, former diplomat, self-styled expert on global politics, and one-time member of the hilariously dystopian-sounding Presidential Commission to Counter Attempts to Falsify History to the Detriment of Russian Interests. Her thesis, essentially, is... Oh, yeah? Well, you're just jealous. Or, to put it another way, the Russian nation and culture are so advanced that the West, which invariably lags behind its spiritual and political achievements, whatever the fuck that means, Anyway, that's why we in the West are constantly trying to undermine Russian society. Because we jelly. Here's the lady herself going in hard on that contemporary Ukraine spin. What your army is doing to these people here is destroying their cities, killing their children. So how does this end? This will end 
the same happy end as with Nazi Germany. And we will withdraw certainly from Ukraine after uh, this noble and uh, honest goal is, uh, you know, realized, etc. This kind of superiority is part and parcel of the identity discussion. If we say that we are the people that started building our nation state in the late 19th century, Americans had their identity, you know, from the 17th century, Britons from the 16th century. Our economy is inherently problematic. Our culture is incredibly influenced by the Dutch, by the Germans, by the Britons, by the Italians, and by the French. So how do we define ourselves? What is Russian about us? Then people like Narachinsky are going to say, look, Russia was always unique. Russia was always kind of more spiritual. Like Russians are going to invite you to your house after your first drink in a bar. You might end up in the flat, right? We're drinking with Russians. But then it will never happen in Sweden, for example, right? You need to be friends with these people for many years before they actually invite you to, to visit their house. There are cultural differences which are amusing for a normal people. All these ridiculous statements about Russians being super spiritual, Russians being super friendly and kind of unique nation with incredible religiosity. That's crap. Because Narachnitska herself, at the moment when she was writing these lines, she lived abroad. She was a representative of Russian government in France. Why she chose to live in France? Why they all choose to buy houses and properties in the West. Because it's all hypocritical. But saying these things about Russian identity, Russian superiority, is part and parcel of the political message. The shock comes when an ordinary Russian comes to the United Kingdom and goes to the shop, goes to elections, watches TV. At some point, he or she will realize everything he or she was told was lies. One practical recent expression of this conspiracist chauvinism has been the result of a weird feedback loop between the U.S. and Russia. Since the 2016 presidential campaign, it's clear the media in the U.S. have decided that Russia's online efforts to fuck with Western political life are all-powerful, and that they were the key factor in both the election of Donald Trump and the passage of Brexit in the U.K. We'll have plenty to say about media overreactions and inflation of Russia's competence in these areas later in the series, we assure you. Definitely, but something weird happened as a result of this American overreaction. The Russians bought it. Yablokov notes Russian politicians were suddenly proud of hacking the states. So their fear of the U.S. combined with their cultural chauvinism to make them believe the overblown, hyperventilating, borderline ridiculous claims about the outsized impacts that Russian hackers had actually had on the U.S. and the U.K. as a result. We're all inclined to scoff at this Russian chauvinism based on thin air, but a big part of the reason we're talking about Russia's total collapse into a conspiracist nightmare is because this is one of the big elements our cultures share a grandiose self-image. The only difference is that, the Trump era aside, our political leadership and intellectuals have traditionally not embraced ridiculous persecution narratives at the highest levels of government. But the threat is clearly there, perhaps more now than ever before. And importantly, just as is the case with Trump and his big election lie, it appears an open question the degree to which Putin actually believes his own bullshit. 
For example, the man claimed back in 2014 that the internet was a CIA project, and it's still developing as such, so Russians have to fight this influence, yada yada yada. At one time, statements like these sounded like cynical provocations by a master manipulator. In the wake of the delusional and poorly planned Ukraine invasion, the line between cynicism and true belief is blurred. Here's how Professor Yablokov addresses the issue. Today, I would argue that Vladimir Putin really believes in conspiracy theories. And every time he's online, every time he speaks publicly, he mentions conspiracy theories. He always argues in conspiratorial terms. Thank God he's not tweeting. What happened to the guy? Pretty much from 2017, this regime started massive ideological, economic, and social degradation. There is a cynical aspect in Putin's using conspiracy theories because it is still working relatively well as a tool to mobilize the electorate and support Vladimir Putin. But I think that the problem with Russia's establishment nowadays is that it's well down the rabbit hole and it simply cannot go back. Because if it goes back... It is not going to be perceived well by those Russians who really buy into the anti-Western stuff. And roughly saying it's 50% of the population. People who run Russian media, people who run Russian government, all realize the amount of paranoia that was spreading in the last several years turned very large part of the Russian population into psychologically very unstable people. What do you know? Spend all of your time spreading paranoia and you and your people get kind of touchy. Which brings us to the most salient current Russian news. That is, of course, their incursion into neighboring Ukraine. Now, of course, there's a lot of recent history leading up to this, from the expansion of NATO to various elections and crises in Ukraine itself. But clearly, the current conflagration started with Putin's 2014 annexation of Crimea, as well as the ongoing proxy war that was subsequently fought by pro-Russian armies in the eastern Donbass region. Which, of course, eventually brings us to the current full-scale invasion. But it's important to remember that prior to crossing that Rubicon, the Kremlin had been sowing lies and confusion about the situation in Ukraine and the reason for hostilities in the minds of Russians for most of a decade. For example, reporter Ann Applebaum, in a discussion about authoritarianism on a recent Ezra Klein podcast, discussed the Russian propaganda response to the inadvertent downing of a Malaysian airliner in 2014 by pro-Russian forces. It is the policy of Putin's Kremlin to make Russians apathetic by offering them contradictory and sometimes ridiculous pieces of information that don't make sense. After the crash of MH17, shot down accidentally by Russian soldiers, the state came out with completely different explanations. And sometimes even the same television presenter would give one explanation and then a different explanation an hour later. And this kind of multiplication of explanations meant that people were totally disoriented. They said, we have no idea what happened and we can never know. I actually saw a kind of man on the street interviews that were done in Moscow a few days later and people's attitude was... We have no idea. Well, it's impossible to find out. You know, if you don't know what happened and you feel that you can never know what happened, then how can you do anything about it? Um, And so I think these are sort of parallel and related feelings. You know, I'll accept anything, but I'm at the same time skeptical of everything. And of course, since the invasion, we've all heard the frightening stories about how effective the official government tale has been. Many of you will no doubt have heard interviews with Russians living in Ukraine who've been unable to convince their family members back home that they are, in fact, being bombed. 
And Misha, your father is in Russia. And after days of bombing and days of this invasion, you were wondering why he hadn't called to check on you in Ukraine. So you finally got him on the phone. What did he say? I told him that we woke up from the bombing and that I took my like little son who is eight months old and uh, we tried to escape and uh, to save the family. And uh, he started to argue. She said, no, 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 everything is not like this. She told me that the Russia started like a peaceful operation and they're trying to save us from the Nazis regime, which occupied our country. And uh, the most interesting thing was uh, that the Russian soldiers are giving uh, to the local people food and warm clothes. So that's the thing he saw on the TV. And they said, no, father, now I'm here. I see what's going on. My friends also see what's going on. Um, and uh, he just could not believe in this. So um, I spent maybe five minutes trying to talk to him, and then I just say goodbye. Sorry. <laughs> Surely okay. hearing this story will make some of you shudder, recalling various conversations you've had with close family members over the past few years, during which you've tried to establish some agreement on baseline reality. You know, up is up. COVID vaccines don't cause 5G cancer. The 2020 election was fairly decided, etc., etc. But at least our in-denial family members have been hand-waving at either invisible problems, global warming, global pandemics, or complex if nonsensical plots like Stop the Steal that claim untrue but non-obvious things. Like, it's not as if each of us counted every 2020 ballot. We just understand that the proper checks have been made of those counts and certified by hundreds of independent and unconnected officials and jurisdictions, and that all of the stolen votes theories don't stand up to the Vegas scrutiny. But denying votes were counted fairly in a series of closed rooms is rather different than claiming, no son, that Russian missile you just saw blow up your local shopping mall, that never happened. Not that we think, America, we're not quite as delusional as Russia, is a great slogan update, mind you. Putin's reckless invasion of Ukraine made Yablokov reevaluate some of the conclusions he had come to in his book. On the one hand, the state seems to have been successful in keeping many Russians from really understanding what's happening across their border. But at the same time, it is called into question the entire world's view of Putin as a brilliant, bloodless, calculating Bond villain playing 4D chess. With the war in Ukraine, I had to reconsider one of the conclusions from this book that the Kremlin is actually skeptical and very postmodernist in the way how it uses. No, not anymore. The amount of propaganda certainly guarantees public support of, say, 50% of population believing in what the propaganda says, plus you have law enforcement services totally at your disposal. This mix can help the regime survive. But there is another thing that I have learned from this crisis. Probably one of the scariest things is social media. It's not television. It is not surprising that so many people are just unable to believe in what really happens in Ukraine because they've been brainwashed for so many years. They never traveled to Ukraine. They never traveled to Baltic States. They never traveled to the United States. So they can believe anything, right? 
But social networks are much more dangerous. Propaganda that can come to you through television, traditional media, when you're exposed to that, you want to get to social media because this is how your brain works. And we know that. So people go on social media, no matter what is their political views, and they end up in a particular stream of information that then can change their perception of reality. If you look at those soldiers that fight in Ukraine these days, Russian soldiers, you see that they all have cell phones. They sit on VK, Russia's biggest social network. They are fed with constant propaganda. This is how they spend a meaningful part of their life. They brainwash themselves with pleasure because this is one of the very few things that the poor Russian state can offer these guys. We asked him how the state's monopoly on propaganda had been called into question in recent years. Traditional media, new media, bigger social networks, they're all under control. But when it comes to the real problems like inflation or coronavirus injection of medicine, it's not some kind of imagined Ukrainian Nazis. I can fill it with my own pockets and I can fill it with my own body. So you cannot fool me says an ordinary Russian, and goes online to look for the facts that would sustain his or her belief in these things. No matter how strong Putin is and the media and the propaganda, Russians have this inherent tradition of mistrust to the government in the things that are concerning their own very real, very personal problems. And this is the limitation of propaganda. And in that case, I'm sure propaganda will not be able to break this, uh, break this trend down. Well, thanks, Jesuit. This overview of Russia's current state of affairs and what it pretends for Western democracies if we can't get our loonier populace back on the reality bus is a real nightmare. Was there anything positive that came out of this? Kind of. Depends on what you mean by positive. One thing that really struck me was that the professor talked about the benefits that conspiracies can have in an authoritarian society, simply by highlighting that society's problems, even if for false reasons. Conspiracy theories can help us understand the weaknesses of our society. Certainly things like QAnon can create a lot of problems, even cause death, as we know. But if we look at conspiracy theories produced not by the Kremlin, but produced by, let's say, Russian opposition, we will see how transparency is lacking in the way how the country is ruled. You can be a big fan of Vladimir Putin, but in your day-to-day life, if you happen to meet a policeman in the street and policemen will fine you without any reason or even put you in jail for like several years, you will hate people who work in the police, in intelligence, in counterintelligence. Before the war and even before the whole thing with coronavirus, you could see there was a lot of anti-Putin, anti-government rhetoric coming from social media. Very often conspiratorial, always pointing at the Kremlin as the source of tragedies for the Russian people. If you analyze the discourse of Russian liberal opposition, you will also note quite a lot of conspiratorial readings of what Putin does and how Putin does. And you will see a lot of humiliation that people have from the way they are ruled. 
the government that was appointed by the Kremlin knows nothing, does nothing, and only make things worse. But you can't do anything with that. The counterintelligence is going to put you in jail. You're going to be called extremist. Of course, they will be silent because they are afraid. And that is one of the reasons why so few people protest today against the war in Ukraine. Their powerlessness inevitably will be channeled into conspiracy theories that dismantle the reputation of the Kremlin. Vladimir Putin and the rest of his establishment simply do not realize the amount of problems they have been creating by polarizing society, by trying to create this concrete floor and put all those grassroots under this concrete floor. How much did you love it when he made that grassroots under his concrete floor analogy? I almost swooned, Unicorn. And with that, we've pretty much wrapped up our overview of the history and domestic status of conspiracy theories in Russia. Now we want to see how fear of Russia kicked off the movements that can be traced over the decades to the QAnon we all know and are confused by. And that begins with the genuine Soviet infiltration of U.S. institutions in the post-war period, the Red Scare overreaction to that infiltration, and the unflappable, often insane standard-bearers for anti-communism who, as a result of all this, came to define the conspiracist right, the John Birch Society. Kids, it's time for some real talk about communism. Finally, comrades, shake off the chains of your oppressive overlords. Seize the means of podcast production. We will educate the proletariat about conspiracy theories without the bourgeois trappings of research, script, music, and all that fancy Yankee decadence. Fearful Jesuit is the opium of the masses. Up against the wall, motherfucker! Well, that was, um... Unexpected, and a little disturbing. And where did you get that balaclava and Molotov cocktail? What, these? I always have them handy to man the barricades in case the workers rise up and revolt. Be prepared, you know? But then, how do you keep the rag burning in the neck of the bottle? Don't you run out of fuel? Oh, I'm so happy you asked. My mom bought me this little Molotov refill device from Spencer's Gifts for Christmas. It's surprisingly well-made and durable. Huh. Oh, that is neat. It was a little weird that you seemed to call for my grisly and summary execution, though. Ah, you know, people say weird stuff. I wouldn't worry about it too much. Let me just test this over there. And let's move on. You were talking about communism? Yes, and your little outburst serves as a nice segue into the first of the tomes we examined for this section, Spiderweb by Nick Fisher. A Gwen Stefani tell-all? I should mention its subtitle is The Birth of American Anti-Communism. Oh, so it's about the Joe McCarthy Red Scare that your country leapt into with both feet when the Soviets started successfully infiltrating U.S. and other Western nations in the post-war period? Yeah, that's what we assumed as well, but no, it turns out the beginnings of the great American anti-commie freakout run far deeper than that. Marx and Engels published their world-shaking pamphlet The Communist Manifesto in 1848, and Fisher demonstrates that by the 1860s, in the wake of the Union victory in the Civil War, American business leaders and politicians were already using the specter of communist takeover of the USA as a bludgeon with which to beat back any attempts to improve the awful conditions in which most Americans labored. 
to quote the man himself. Increasing numbers of Americans struggle to meet their basic needs. They did not make a living wage or work in a safe environment, and they had no safety net to sustain them when they became sick or disabled. The principle of forcing people to labor in intolerable conditions or for intolerable terms survived slavery to become a basic feature of working life. They worked in dangerous jobs for subsistence wages, in constant fear of poverty and loss of livelihood. Average workers bore the brunt of prolonged recession. Simultaneously, the economic dominance of corporations and the institutionalization of political corruption as the price of economic development increased with each passing decade. Many employers and magnates refused to negotiate with labor unions, and the state generally rose to the defense of property. Okay, but couldn't these downtrodden laborers look to their government for help? Boy, Unicorn, that was a slow pitch over the middle of the plate. Government attitudes toward the disbursement of public monies were epitomized by President Grover Cleveland, who in 1892 agreed to lower interest rate charges on a $26 million government loan to the Union of Pacific Railroad, but vetoed a $10,000 appropriation for Texas farmers in need of drought relief. Citizens, the president said, had to understand that though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. Fisher also notes that during the late 19th century, when most English-speaking countries were expanding the vote, the U.S. was actually in a race to squash the expansion of that political freedom via labor organizing, usually through upsettingly violent means. Calling the workers communists was a nice shorthand to group disparate efforts together under a single banner that could then be characterized as un-American. And of course, the police at this point were only too happy to bust communist heads at the behest of captains of industry and their political enablers. This is not to say there wasn't actual violence perpetrated by pro-labor forces, like the activities of the transatlantic and arguably apocryphal Molly McGuire's coal mining activist group, some of whose purported members were tried and executed for murders and other crimes related to their struggle against the mining companies. But the preponderance of violence, repression, and overheated rhetoric was unquestionably on the side of the capitalists. Out of these efforts and the first American Red Scare, set off by the Bolshevik takeover of the government of Russia in the waning days of World War I, the network of interlocking anti-communist, anti-immigrant, pro-business groups that gives Fisher's book its title first began to emerge. And from the beginning, Fisher notes, there was a significant mismatch between these organizations' pro-freedom rhetoric and the way they actually constituted themselves and went about their business. The great majority of these organizations were publicly disingenuous about their aims and methods. Whether they were state and military intelligence arms that concealed and disavowed their illegal political surveillance and strike-breaking, or commercial lobbies that cloaked themselves in old glory and the Constitution, spiderweb organizations operated on the basis of conspiracy. They functioned internally as rigidly hierarchical autocracies, and externally as secretive, shadowy groups, refusing to divulge their financial affairs and principal sources of income even to their own members. This approach was not surprising. Revealing such information would necessarily disclose the anti-democratic and elitist character of the anti-communist movement, which survived on subsidies from wealthy businessmen and corporations. In one particular weird turn of affairs, anti-communism actually helped big business rehabilitate itself prior to World War II. During the Great Depression, the reputation of these companies in the minds of the public was dog shit, but by relentlessly flocking the specter of creeping socialism, a term used to smear every piece of social legislation during the period, Fisher details how businesses turned the tide of public opinion back in favor of themselves at the expense of a mostly phantom enemy, those goddamn traitorous American commies. And here, of course, is the moment when two important anti-communist voices arose, 
the aforementioned tailgunner Joe McCarthy, and a man who will be the focus of most of our attention in this section, Robert Welch Jr. We live in the age of Robert Welch, whether or not we know who he is, what he did, or why he matters. That's the opening line of a really good biography of Welch that came out this year, and I would tell you the name of it, but the gent who was kind enough to let us interview him for this section will do a better job. My name is Edward H. Miller, and I'm the author of A Conspiratorial Life, which is a biography of Robert Welch. And why is Mr. Miller so sure we're living in the world Welch made? Well, consider the following quote. Welch called Sputnik 1 a hoax. Welch believed Vietnam to be a phony war in which both sides were being run not from the White House, but from the Kremlin. Welch said the civil rights movement was a conspiracy of the communists. The creation of the United Nations, he was sure, was just the beginning step toward one world government, with communists and American officials working behind the scenes. Sound like a certain contemporary conspiracy cult you've heard of? If not, here's an even more scathing and actually pretty unfair portrayal that was issued in a 1961 California Attorney General's report on the John Birch Society that Welch founded, and which seems even more apropos regarding the similarities between the Birchers and QAnon. The cadre of the John Birch Society seems to be formed primarily of wealthy businessmen, retired military officers, and little old ladies in tennis shoes. They are bound together by an obsessive fear of communism, a word which they define to include any ideas differing from their own, even though these ideas may differ even more markedly with the ideas of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Khrushchev. In response to this fear, they are willing to give up a large measure of the freedoms guaranteed them by the United States Constitution in favor of accepting the dictates of their founder. They seek, by fair means or foul, to force the rest of us to follow their example. They are pathetic. Mr. Miller's introduction certainly connects Trump-era evidence-free conspiracy theories directly to the inspiration of Welch, his influential writing, and the John Birch Society he founded. Uh, Whether you love him or hate him, you can't deny the amazing life that he led. To some, he was a genius. To others, he was a madman. He wanted to change the world. But when the world wouldn't listen, he founded a world that would. It was a world of conspiracy, a world of make-believe. Even better, for your host's ego, Welch eventually came to expand his conspiracy thinking beyond communism to embrace a broader conspiracy that once again fits well with Jesuit's maxim of conspiracy underpinnings. In other words, that the actual movers and shakers behind the plot against freedom started with Weishaupt and the Bavarian Illuminati. The standard narrative implies that when influential conservative intellectual and publisher William F. Buckley Jr. excommunicated Welch and the Birchers from the mainstream of the conservative movement back in the mid-60s, they became increasingly marginalized as extremists. But as we've seen through the work of Rick Perlstein and others, back in the historical political conspiracy series we did in 2020, this excommunication was not nearly as thorough as Buckley would have wanted you to believe. And in fact, at this point in history, it's clear that Welch's brand of conspiracist conservatism has far more sway over the political landscape than does Buckley's more measured approach. In Miller's words, Most analyses of the conservative movement have made the tones of American conservatism sound like the Beach Boys, but it has always sounded like death metal. For a person with such a combative and oppositional legacy, Welch by all accounts lived a personal life that was remarkably happy and content. Sure, he spent decades trying to wrest some approval out of his father, but his mother was so loving and supportive she armored her son with an apparently unassailable sense of self-confidence. From childhood, he never doubted he was destined to do great things. He was a child prodigy who was reading at the age of two. 
He attended the University of North Carolina when he was 12 years old. He had a very happy home life. He was a devoted husband. Uh, He married the woman of his dreams. He was very much in love from the time that he met her. He spent a decade building his own business in the candy industry. He was the maker of the sugar daddies, those uncoated cooked caramel on a stick, which became a childhood favorite. Interestingly, he did this not because he was obsessed with succeeding in business, so much as because he wanted to have a comfortable enough living to support his intellectual pursuits. And it's worth noting that his choice of industry may, per Miller, have had some unexpected influence on the young man's intellectual development. He noted that an air of secrecy and suspicion pervaded the growing industry at the time, as confectioners sought to protect their most popular recipes and in-development products from prying eyes. Presumably with a nod to Roald Dahl, he notes, quote, In 20th century America, reclusive, eccentric, and paranoid confectioners were found not only in the pages of novels. The danger must be growing for the rowers to keep on rowing, and they're certainly not showing any signs that they are In the 1930s, a series of unforeseen economic issues bankrupted Welch's previously thriving business, and by 1935 he was forced to go to work for his younger brother, whom he had introduced to the candy industry a decade before. Though this was a bitter pill to swallow, it turned out for the best. Young James Welch was, as both brothers acknowledged, a better businessman. But it also turned out that Robert was one hell of a candy salesman. Sales surged from $200,000 to $20 million by 1956, with Robert's indefatigable sales efforts. And the success of products like Sugar Daddies, which he had invented before joining James's firm. Eventually, James's rather high-handed and dismissive treatment of his brother led to Robert quitting to focus full-time on his other pursuits. But weirdly, this didn't lead to a personal break. The brothers remained close. For such a prolific and heated polemicist, Welch wasn't much of a grudge holder. I don't think he spent a lot of time reflecting on people. The only time he held a grudge was when he was writing a letter. He would pen a beautifully written letter that would just eviscerate an opponent. But after the letter was written and either thrown away or mailed, he forgot about the grudge. During the 30s and 40s, Welch became increasingly concerned about FDR and the Democrats. They were, to his mind, spreading socialism and supporting workers' rights at the expense of American enterprise. In terms of foreign affairs, they were moving the country in the direction of war. As an isolationist and a businessman, Welch stridently opposed these positions. He went so far as to join the America First Committee, whose standard-bearer was American hero, aviator, and Nazi sympathizer Charles Lindbergh, and the sole purpose of which was to oppose the U.S. getting into the war against the Germans. America's First Committee Why does that sound so familiar? From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Oh yeah, that. Now, none of this should be heard to construe young Bob as a closet brown shirt. As Miller notes, even a young Jack Kennedy sent the AFC a $100 check at the time, probably reflecting the influence of his anti-interventionist father. But the key point here is that many in the AFC thought that instead of worrying about fascism, the U.S. should be focused on stemming the spread of international communism. 
This is also the first point where Welch's unique blind spot when it came to recognizing worrying beliefs in his erstwhile allies came to the fore. There were anti-Semitic members of the John Birch Society. Welch tried to purge them, but Welch was egregious in the slowness of their removal. And he continues to give this blind eye to strident anti-Semites of the old right. He continues to allow them to publish their screeds into the 1960s. He maintains correspondence with them. The fact that they were allowed to be there in the first place demonstrates that Welch tolerated individuals who held abhorrent views about Jews and Judaism. He couldn't run a society based on theories about shadowy string pullers without attracting anti-Semites, which was what happened. Specifically, he managed to ignore the blatant anti-Semitism that was rife among many pro-AFC individuals, as well as his fellow business people in his adopted hometown of Boston, just as he eventually would in the ranks of his own John Birch Society. We should probably note at this point that, given his birth at the dawn of the 20th century, in the state of North Carolina, and with an uncle who had served one term in the state legislature, and whose singular achievement was the passage of a state constitutional amendment that eliminated black North Carolinians' voting rights. Robert himself remarkably did not seem to harbor any of the standard animosities toward blacks, Jews, and other minorities that were endemic to his contemporaries. Don't get us wrong. He harbored plenty of aggressive views on civil rights and other issues, as well as a proper place of women in society. And as Miller notes, Welch, like many well-off white dudes of his generation, was perfectly comfortable imitating the dialects of black people, both in and out of their presence. Of course, we have no recordings of these obviously awful interludes, but Dana has bravely offered to reenact Welch's offensive, minstrel-style characterizations for us here. Jesuit, I swear to God. Of course, we are not going to do anything of the sort. I just like keeping her on her toes. Welch also remained steadfast in his acceptance of African Americans, Jews, and women as important members of his society once it was established, and had warm personal relationships with people of many backgrounds throughout his life. In fact, while the society would be denounced as fascistic by mainstream publications and other institutions throughout their heyday, as DJ Malloy points out in his The World of the John Birch Society, this label was lazy and really missed the whole point of the Bircher worldview. Welch displayed none of the traits of the fascist charismatic leader, and he did not evoke any of the typical responses in his followers. Nor did he, or the society as a whole, regard capitalism as fundamentally deficient or socially divisive. On the contrary, both Welch and the Birchers extolled its virtues as the very engine of American progress and prosperity. Anti-Semitism is also not a trait that can be convincingly attributed to the John Birch Society, as the California Senate's Un-American Activities Subcommittee noted correctly. More philosophically, Welch had an entirely traditional view of the basic constraints of human nature and its eternal truths in contrast to the fascists' belief in the mutability and perfectibility of man. Finally, no ringing declarations of the transcendent power or extraordinary destiny of the folk were to be found embedded in the society's literature. To be sure, the Birch Society was virulently anti-communist and extremely suspicious about the merits of democracy. Other commonly agreed-upon fascist traits but the former view was shared by the overwhelming majority of American society at the time, and the latter had led Welch to embrace not fascism, but an older, Republican-based model of American politics. We'll come back to all of this when discussing the John Birch Society's various campaigns, but for now we'll simply notice that Welch's problem in this area stemmed not only from the time and place in which he was born, but also from his gung-ho Americanism, which led him to be suspicious of so-called hyphenism. African-American, German-American, Italian-American, etc. 
And moreover, the same tendency ended up turning him into a conspiracy theorist. Well, his early life helped make him a conspiracist. He was born in a postbellum South that was very suspicious of the North. His ancestors feared the loss of their social status, the loss of their slaves, the loss of their jobs, the decline of their white supremacy. And even after he had left the South as a young candy manufacturer working in an industry without patents and fearing that his latest confectionery invention would be stolen by the competition. Welch was always in a state of hypervigilance. That Welch's original business was unsuccessful, that also contributed to his insecurity. After he went into business with his brother James, whom he taught everything he knew about the candy business, he discovered that James never considered him a business partner, but simply an employee who deserved a daily wage, but no more. Once Pearl Harbor happened, Welch became convinced that FDR, who he was certain knew in advance precisely where and how the attack would happen, had carried off an illegal coup, bringing the U.S. into a war under false pretenses. He was hardly the only person, either then or today, to believe this conspiracy theory. See our false flag episode. Like Ronald Reagan would a decade plus later, Welch began his career in politics by delivering speeches to essentially any group that would have him. Unlike Reagan, however, Welch was not a particularly commanding or engaging presence at the lectern. In fact, here's Miller's rather nauseating description of the Robert Welch Live experience. The papers from the speech would fall from the rostrum to the floor. His persistent cough from all the cigars he loved to smoke would cause him to hack away without regard to the audience. That would produce phlegm. Then he would swallow the sputum, likely turning the stomachs of the attendees. Fuck, Jesuit. Yeah, I know. But the point is, it wasn't Welch's speaking style that mesmerized. It was his prose and the conspiracies it claimed to unearth that had speaking invitations flooding in from all sorts of right-leaning and patriotic groups in the post-war period. Another difference, of course, was that unlike Reagan, Welch didn't collect fat speaking fees for his efforts. Yep. Welch was the sort of true believer for whom money just didn't figure into the equation. His life's work was saving free Western civilization from the threat of communism. Getting paid for his efforts wasn't a big consideration. Nor was he seeking personal glory when he made an abortive attempt to run for lieutenant governor of Massachusetts in 1950, but his failure in the Republican primary convinced him once and for all that his influence wouldn't be as a politician, but rather as the nation's foremost promulgator of the ideas that obsessed him. Which brings us to the decade in which the country's obsession with communism reached a fever pitch, the 1950s. And of course, the single person who embodied anti-red sentiment for millions of Americans was one Joseph Tailgunner Joe McCarthy. First things first, the Soviets did, indeed, engage in extensive clandestine efforts to infiltrate the West and steal secrets. But McCarthy and Welch had the timing all wrong. Welch is off by about 30 years. 
a conspiracy theory of communist subversion had some basis in reality at a certain time. But by 1951, when Senator Joseph McCarthy was declaring a conspiracy at the highest levels of the federal government and Robert Welch was saying the same thing, the number of Soviet spies within the Truman and Eisenhower administrations was negligible and had little influence. Writers like Welch made Americans believe that high-level officials like Dean Acheson, George Marshall, and even President Eisenhower were enemies of the state. Miller notes that the real heyday of Soviet infiltration of the U.S. started in the 1920s. At the time, the target wasn't government, but rather business secrets. These industrial espionage efforts helped turbocharge Soviet industrialization. Then, of course, came the 1930s, which historians agree was the real golden era of Soviet spying. The NKVD. That's the predecessor to the KGB. Deployed a network of spies, known as the Legals and the Illegals, who were almost astonishingly accomplished at recruiting and collecting intelligence from highly placed, communist-sympathizing Brits and Americans. Those of you who are fans of smart, well-plotted, late Cold War TV drama of the highest quality may recall that the couple who were at the heart of the excellent 2010s drama series The Americans were part of the illegal side of this espionage program. That's right. The smart, resourceful, super-duper sexy. Philip and Elizabeth, who, in spite of their being thrown together by duty, have a palpable animal magnetism that drives them to fall on each other in a sweaty, heaving tangle of limbs, tearing away both ideology and their clothes in a writhing, orgiastic riot of undeniable lust. Jesuit? No, he's not responding. Uh, quick hit guy, some cold water? Paradox Drain! Emergency Fire Hose! Jeez. Oh. You back with us? Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. Anyway, those characters are what the KGB called illegals, agents who silently infiltrate another country. In this case, assigned to portray a married pair of travel agents in D.C. while actually focusing on doing all kinds of skullduggery capturing defectors, recruiting or seducing well-placed sources, etc. All the while being like, really? What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, sexy? Mm, Yeah, that's it. Legals, meanwhile, were those Russians who had legitimate reason to be in the country in which they were spying. That is, folks who worked in the diplomatic corps, embassy staff, etc. Exactly. And while the show was inspired by a ring of Russian illegals who were exposed in 2010, those recent spies weren't nearly as effective as their counterparts from the 1920s and 30s. The story is detailed in the fascinating The Sword and the Shield, a comprehensive review of Cold War KGB infiltrations of the West based on files smuggled out of the spy agency itself by defector Vasily Mitrokin back in the 1970s. In other words, this is the best warts and all view we have of how the Soviet spy agency functioned and dysfunctioned during the Cold War. The first surprising thing to realize was that, even as late as the 1930s, getting intelligence from the USA was secondary to obtaining secrets from the UK, France, and Germany, which Stalin and co. saw as far more impactful world powers. Of course, as the US began to involve itself more in European affairs, eventually entering World War II and then working on atomic weapons, the focus very much changed. But it's worth considering the Soviets' numerous successes in infiltrating the Brits in the 30s and how they fill out the view of Stalin we covered earlier, that he was both a wielder and victim of conspiracy thinking. Clearly, the biggest intelligence coup they accomplished was recruiting a group of highly placed government contacts known as the Five. By far the most celebrated of these agents were a group of five young Cambridge graduates. Anthony Blunt, Guy Burgess, John Cairncross, 
Donald McLean, and Kim Philby. After the release of the enormously popular western The Magnificent Seven in 1960, they were often referred to as the Magnificent Five. These gents delivered an absolutely astonishing volume of incredibly useful information, simply because they were true believers in the great international socialist cause. But that's where the weirdness of Stalin's brain started kneecapping the effectiveness of his own spy agency. The problem was all of the higher-ups in the government believed that the UK must obviously be putting just as much effort into spying on the USSR as they themselves were putting into their British operations. Only this just wasn't true. Neither the UK nor the US really ramped up efforts to spy on the Reds until wartime. But Stalin believed it must be true. So you can see what would have happened, right? Oh, of course. If their UK spies couldn't provide details on the UK's non-existent anti-Soviet spying program, they were ipso facto double agents for the Brits and therefore couldn't be trusted. Bingo. Philby's accurate report that at the present time, the hotel, SIS, is not engaged in active work against the Soviet Union, was also, in the center's view, obvious disinformation. Since the five were double agents, it followed that those they had recruited to the NKVD were also plants. One example which particularly exercised the center was the case of Peter Smollett, who in 1941 had achieved the remarkable feat of becoming head of the Russian department in the wartime Ministry of Information. By 1943, Smollett was using his position to organize pro-Soviet propaganda on a prodigious scale. A vast meeting at the Albert Hall in February to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Red Army included songs of praise by a massed choir, readings by John Gielgud and Laurence Olivier, and was attended by leading politicians from all parties. Yet because Smollett had been recruited by Philby, he was, in the eyes of the centre, necessarily a plant. His apparently spectacular success in organising pro-Soviet propaganda on an unprecedented scale was thus perversely interpreted as a cunning plot by British intelligence to hoodwink the NKVD. In fact, the book notes the Russians were deeply confused by the fact that all of the intelligence the five delivered was so accurate and dependable, but decided that that was part of the whole double bluff. See, kids? Friends don't let friends become conspiracy theorists, especially when those friends are autocratic heads of state. Not that these doubts stopped Philby. Prior to his eventual defection to the Soviet Union, to avoid arrest and imprisonment, from continuing to be a huge asset to his spymasters and a real traitorous shit to his country of origin. Philby's liaison duties with the CIA allowed him to warn the center of American as well as British operations against the Soviet bloc, even enabling him to provide the geographical coordinates of parachute drops by British and American agents. When writing his memoirs later, Philby was sometimes unable to resist gloating over the fate of the hundreds of agents he betrayed. Referring to those who parachuted into the arms of the MGB, he wrote with macabre irony, I do not know what happened to the parties concerned, but I can make an informed guess. Of course, even if the Soviets hadn't been hampered by their own conspiracist worldview, there was some doubt as to how effectively they could have used all this intelligence in the first place. The book proves that the KGB was far better at gathering material than it was at turning it into actionable information. The Soviet capacity to understand the political and diplomatic intelligence it collected never approached its ability to collect that intelligence in the first place. Its natural tendency to substitute conspiracy theory for pragmatic analysis when assessing the intentions of the encircling imperialist powers was made worse during the 1930s by Stalin's increasing tendency to act as his own intelligence analyst. Stalin indeed actively discouraged intelligence analysis by others, which he condemned as dangerous guesswork. Don't tell me what you think, he is reported to have said. Give me the facts and the source. As a result, INO had no analytical department. As usual, the whole apparatus was bent to the whims of Stalin, which means they were delivering a view of reality skewed toward whatever they thought Uncle Joe wanted to hear. And what Stalin wanted to hear was that the biggest threat to the future of the USSR, next to his former rival Leon Trotsky, whom he finally had assassinated in Mexico City in 1940, with a fucking axe. 
Yeah, aside from Trotsky, the biggest threat was, of course, literally anyone in the Soviet Union who might disagree with Stalin even the tiniest bit about anything. Which leads us to the reason that those legals and illegals who were so effective in the 1930s stopped being so effective. Which is that Stalin had them all recalled to the motherland, where most ended up denounced and or shot during the Great Terror of 1936-38, to along with about 700,000 of their fellow citizens. Among the first to fall under suspicion was the London head of probably the NKVD's most successful illegal residency, Theodor Malie, whose religious background and revulsion at the use of terror made him an obvious suspect. He accepted the order to return to Moscow in June 1937 with an idealistic fatalism. I know that as a former priest I haven't got a chance, he told Alexander Orlov. But I have decided to go there so that nobody can say that priest might have been a real spy after all. Once in Moscow he was denounced as a German spy, interrogated and shot a few months later. So what about the Soviets' efforts in the U.S.? Well, once they geared up to really develop spies in America, the spy service was once again remarkably successful. In fact, their infiltration is, in retrospect, rather terrifying. Speaking of two of the highest-placed spies, Lawrence Duggan and Harry Dexter White, well, just listen. Henry Wallace, vice president during Roosevelt's third term of office, 1941-1945, said later that if the ailing Roosevelt had died during that period and he had become president, it had been his intention to make Duggan his secretary of state and White his secretary of the treasury. The fact that Roosevelt survived three months into an unprecedented fourth term in the White House and replaced Wallace with Harry Truman as vice president in January 1945 deprived Soviet intelligence of what would have been its most spectacular success in penetrating a major Western government. The NKVD succeeded nonetheless in penetrating all the most sensitive sections of the Roosevelt administration. Holy shit! Tail Gunner Joe and Bob Welsh are sounding more sensible all the time. Indeed. And the book points out that the Soviets were particularly effective when it came to stealing science and technology secrets by turning well-placed scientists and others into informants during the 30s and 40s. In 1939 alone, NKVD operations in the United States obtained 18,000 pages of technical documents, 487 sets of designs, and 54 samples of new technology. Thus, our accelerated development of atomic and eventually nuclear weapons, thanks to stolen plans from the UK and the US. Which, again seems to make the Red Scare pretty reasonable. Sure, at first glance it seems so, but we remind you of the truism about conspiracy theorists that we mentioned way back in our very first episode. One of the problems of conspiracist thinking is it makes you believe that an enemy who was effective in the past remains exactly that effective and powerful forever, ignoring the fact that nobody stays at the top of their game indefinitely. As we just noted, Stalin kneecapped his own intelligence gathering via his ruthless paranoid purges. It also became tremendously more difficult to develop great legal and illegal embedded agents, either by training Soviets to do the job or by recruiting in the West in subsequent decades. The age of the great illegals, brilliant cosmopolitans such as Deutsch and Mali, able to inspire others with their own visionary faith in the future of the Soviet system, had gone never to return, turning Soviet citizens brought up in the authoritarian, intellectually blinkered command economy of Stalin's Russia into people who could pass as Westerners and cope successfully with life in the United States, was to prove a daunting as well as time-consuming business. Recruiting high-flying, ideologically committed American agents was also vastly more difficult during the Cold War than during the 1930s or the Second World War. The Soviet Union had lost much of its appeal even to young, radical intellectuals alienated by the materialism and injustices of American society. It was deeply ironic that when McCarthy's self-serving campaign against the Red Menace was at its height, Soviet penetration of the American government was at its lowest ebb for almost 30 years. In fact, most of the biggest intelligence successes they had during Eisenhower and Kennedy's administrations were from Westerners who just walked into an embassy and offered to share what they knew.
key factor driving Welch's post-war obsession with opposing communism that we hadn't previously considered was that, as Miller puts it, Welch, like millions of Americans, lived in a state of fear. The period we're talking about is just a few years after the first atomic bombs were dropped by the U.S. on Japan. It's funny. Gen Xers like Jesuit and certain Northern European legendary horse ladies were born into a world where being afraid that full-scale nuclear war could break out at any time had been table stakes for decades. Indeed. And in fact, the overall Gen X slacker who-gives-a-shit attitude is nicely summed up by sketch comedy geniuses Kids in the Hall a few years after we lost the USSR as a mortal enemy. Oh yeah, we feared the Russians back in them days, and for good reason, too. But now all I ever hear is... Poor little Russia, they've got no money. Poor little Russia, they've gone broke. Poor little Russia this and poor little Russia that. Don't you get it? Am I the only one that gets it? It's a trick. Communism never dies. Communism is a cancer, a cancer sleeping, awaiting the moment to devour our freedom, to devour democracy. Oh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this guy's just some right-wing paranoid reactionary who had a horrible upbringing and whose father beat him every day with a Bible. Well, maybe that's true, but it never did me any harm. <laughs> All I'm saying is, a few years ago, people used to listen to me. I fit in. Well, listen to me now. The Russians, they're going to try to take over the world again. Don't you forget that for one second, friend, or else you'll find yourself lining up for toilet paper in some godless world. Given all that, it's hard for us to comprehend how absolutely sci-fi fucked up this scenario must have seemed to a 49-year-old man of the post-war era. Yeah, imagine. Welch is born in what amounts to a horse-and-buggy world, and now, before he turns 50, it's suddenly possible for humans to drop a weapon that is, for all intents and purposes, the fucking hand of God emerging from the clouds and smiting you and everyone you know out of existence in seconds. And worse, while yours is the only government that knows how to build these things, it's a sure fucking bet that other countries, like emerging superpower opponent the USSR, which you recently discovered had absolutely riddled the Roosevelt administration with spies bent on stealing secrets like atomic weapons, would start cranking out their own world-shattering bombs soon enough. At which point, for the first time in history, it would be possible for an entire city to be destroyed by an enemy in minutes, potentially without any declaration of war or advance notice of any kind. Terrifying stuff, right? But, of course, Welch didn't respond like any normal shit-scared American man of his era by getting drunk, chasing his secretary around his desk, beating his kids, or digging a homemade fallout shelter in the backyard. Instead, he threw himself into the anti-communist movement that was being spearheaded by his political hero, Joe McCarthy. As Miller notes, McCarthy was making politics interesting again. It was warfare. It was mortal combat. It was hyperbole. It was fun. The second Red Scare's first major event came when Elizabeth Bentley, also known as the Red Spy Queen, started talking to the House Un-American Activities Committee. We were getting information from the Army, particularly the Air Corps, from the Treasury, from the State Department, from the OSS, from the CIAA, the Rockefeller Committee, from the OWI, or Manpower Commission, I think that about covers it, Senator. Yeah, what were some of your activities when you were a card-carrying member? Well, I think they're the usual activities for a uh, communist member, uh, participating in picket lines, uh, helping in strikes, um, going on demonstrations to help the unemployed or to uh, other outfits who were demonstrating, uh, reading Communist Party literature, 
Uh, paying dues? Paying dues, certainly. Did you pay your dues? Yes, I paid my dues. Of course, Bentley's confessions were big news, but they were, in fact, backward-looking. The heyday of her spy circle occurred during the war. By the time she testified in 1948, the Soviets had, for reasons we outlined previously, lost most of their mojo. But McCarthy's raving claim that he had a list of 205 dedicated communists in the State Department, of course, kicked things into high dudgeon. And Senator Joe and his compatriots on the House Un-American Activities Committee, or PUAC, began conducting hearings investigating every area in which they suspected communist infiltration and subversion, especially Hollywood and various government departments. We covered Nixon's role in the Alger-Hiss case, which was a big part of this Red Scare phenomenon, albeit one aimed at a man who was probably an actual spy, which wasn't true for most of the targets. In spite of the fact that they were persecuting and smearing the reputations of innocent people, the HUAC, of course, postured like any bully, claiming those who opposed their activities were the real oppressors, as in this committee-produced propaganda film. Ladies and gentlemen, Congressman Francis E. Walter, Democrat from Pennsylvania, and chairman of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Operation Abolition. This is what the communists call their current drive to destroy the House Committee on Un-American Activities and to render sterile the security laws of our government. The Communist Party has given top priority to Operation Abolition and has assigned agents, trained and agitation to this project. During the next few minutes, you will see revealed uh, the long-time classic communist tactic in which a relatively few well-trained, hardcore communist agents are able to incite and use non-communist sympathizers to perform the dirty work of the Communist Party. Eventually, the whole thing started falling apart when McCarthy took on the U.S. military, accusing various personnel of secret communist leanings. This all came to a head when Joseph Welch, general counsel for the Army, had this famous exchange with the senator. And I want to say, Mr. Welch, that it has been labeled long before he became a member, as early as 1944, Senator, may we not drop this? Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? I know this hurts you, Mr. Welch. I'll say it hurts. May I say, Mr. Chairman, as a point of personal privilege, I'd like to finish this. Senator, I think it hurts you too, sir. At that point, the U.S. public had a sort of emperor's new clothes moment, and McCarthy began to be seen as the opportunistic conspiracist that he in fact was. Anti-communism of the McCarthy-Welch variety fell out of fashion, to the point that, ironically, as the KGB history notes, the whole thing ended up serving as invaluable cover for the USSR's limited ongoing efforts to rebuild its infiltration of the U.S. during the latter 50s. McCarthy's raving was so over-the-top, it made the liberal establishment more likely to ignore the actual, still-existing threat. Despite his outrageous inventions and exaggerations, McCarthy rapidly won a mass following. He did so because he succeeded in striking a popular chord. To many Americans, the idea of an enemy within, given plausibility by the convictions of Hiss and Fuchs, followed a year later by those of the Rosenbergs, helped to explain why the United States, despite its immense power, seemed unable to prevent the onward march of world communism and the emergence of the Soviet Union as a nuclear superpower. President Truman's claim in 1951 that the greatest asset that the Kremlin has as Senator McCarthy was, in the long run, to be proved right. McCarthy ultimately did more for the Soviet cause 
than any agent of influence the KGB ever had. His preposterous self-serving crusade against the Red Menace made liberal opinion around the world sceptical of the reality of Moscow's secret intelligence offensive against the main adversary. It took some years, however, for the centre to grasp the enormous propaganda advantages of McCarthyism. Tailgunner Joe may have gone away, but Robert Welch was certainly not giving up the fight. Still convinced that internal subversion was the greatest threat to the United States. An opinion that wouldn't waver for the rest of his life. Welch started writing. His first major effort was eventually published in 1951 under the title May God Forgive Us, a broadside outlining Welch's conviction that the Truman administration was rife with communists sabotaging U.S. foreign policy. It sold like hotcakes. Though not as fast as Welch's significant ego thought it should. The book was full of simplistic arguments and exaggerations, but as Miller notes, Compared to the nonsensical hyperbole that McCarthy was spewing, may God forgive us, made Welch appear a scholar and a statesman, at least in the eyes of the right. By 1954, midway through Eisenhower's first term, as McCarthy's popularity and that of his anti-communist crusade was collapsing, Welch became convinced that the president was doing the bidding of Moscow. Please recall, this is General Dwight David Eisenhower, the man who oversaw the Normandy landing and led U.S. forces in Europe in World War II. Welch thought that guy was a secret red. Not only did he think it, he wrote it. He started circulating a long manuscript, what would eventually become a 200-page tome called The Eisenhower Letter, to other conservatives who either shared his convictions or whom he thought could be convinced. The screed would come back to haunt him a few years later, but we'll address that momentarily. In the years after his lieutenant gubernatorial run, Welch adapted his erstwhile campaign committee into a group of like-minded, dedicated, small-government, pro-America diehards who would in turn disperse like right-wing dandelions on the wind, establishing small groups across Massachusetts and eventually other states. This, of course, was the original hardcore of what would later in the decade form the John Birch Society. Which leads us to a point that many of you may already have wondered, namely, Why is this thing called the John Birch Society instead of the Robert Welch Society? Well, Welch, whatever his other faults, wasn't much of a self-aggrandizing megalomaniac. True believer? Sure. Easily convinced of huge conspiracies on flimsy evidence? No doubt. But he's not the kind of dude who needed to plaster his name all over everything. In fact, far from leveraging the society for his own glorification or as a cash cow, Miller notes the Birch Society by the end of his life had essentially eaten the significant fortune Welch made in his first career as a candy executive. He took no salary, poured most of his earnings into the JBS, and at his death barely left his widow enough to live on. But much more important was what the actual historical John Birch represented for Welch. That is, the avatar of the sort of American who would be needed to fight the crucial anti-communist battles of the future. So, spill the beans. Who the fuck is this uh, John Birch guy? Ted, walk us through it. John Birch was a Baptist missionary who was killed by the Chinese communists about 10 days after the end of World War II. It was a difficult time in 1954 when Robert started to write his book, The Life of John Birch. The his case was over. That was no longer a way to garner support for the right. Robert Taft had died. McCarthy was in a downfall due to his alcoholism. 
So Welch tries to fill this vacuum. It was a conspiratorial thesis addressing who lost China. And at the center of it was John Birch. For Welch, Birch offered evidence of a massive conspiracy and a cover-up centered on the loss of China and treason by high-level American officials. Welch wrote that Birch was the first casualty of the Cold War. He ships out to China to evangelize. He wants to win souls to Christ. August 25th, 1945, Birch encounters uh, Chinese communist soldiers. He's ordered to disarm. Birch is not one to back down, and he was shot dead. The soldiers mutilated his face beyond recognition. A Chinese nationalist soldier who survived shared the tale. Okay, sad story of a guy with messianic ideas who challenged the wrong Chinese soldiers at the wrong time. But why was he so important to Welch? I still don't understand why you're bothering me when Ted is standing right there. It's rude, Dana. So Welch presented Birch as a victim of these two conspiracies. The first is calculated murder by the Chinese Communist Party. The second is cover-up by the State Department which Welch alleged sought to keep the sellout of China under wraps. The deep state was complicit, said Welch. Welch is arguing that had Birch lived, the world would be very different now. Chiang Kai-shek would have defeated Mao. China would be a democratic republic. So Welch believed that every Westerner needed to know Birch's story. And all that was at stake was the survival of Western civilization. Still, however strange Welch's elevation of Birch's importance to the post-war world was, he was right that the government had worked to minimize or cover up the circumstances of the young missionary's death. At the core of it, the State Department really had plenty of reasons to keep quiet about the details of Birch's death. Chinese-American relations were precarious. The fact is, there's no deep state lurking in the bowels of the State Department. China was suffering the civil war between nationalists and communists, but the United States was technically an ally to both, and it was hardly interested in straining either relationship. A tragedy such as a soldier's death is just a minor detail. Birch was sort of a a pawn in the game of diplomacy at the particular time, but Robert never believed that. Welch was absolutely convinced that if Birch's story was widely known by the American people, they would finally adopt Welch's anti-communist absolutism against the Chinese as well as the Soviets. The book came out in 1960, two years after he formally founded the society that would bear the anti-communist martyr's name. But I'm assuming said book did not, in fact, bring the American people around to Welch's way of thinking? It did not. But let's have Ted explain how the JBS actually came together in 1958. Robert Welch ran for lieutenant governor in 1950. He came in second. He did rather well for a first-time political candidate. But he was crestfallen after the loss, and he began to establish what were called Welch campaign committees, where he would go around Massachusetts and educate people about the rise of socialism. He saw Massachusetts as a perfect guinea pig for socialism for the rest of the country. It turns out that Welch would disband these organizations, but he was still interested in doing something with educational organizations. Eight years after he lost the lieutenant governor's race, he established the John Birch Society, which became the most successful anti-communist organization in the history of the United States. It's established in 1958. 
Welch talked over a weekend and all these titans of business came. They were men like William Greedy, former National Association of Manufacturers president, T. Coleman Andrews, the former IRS commissioner who opposed the income tax. Fred Koch was there, who is the president of Coke Island Oil and Refinery Company, which later became Coke Industries, among others. These men long believed that socialism threatened the body politic. Lenin's vision to seize the world they believed was to be achieved by the growth of the federal government. And this group thought that the communists were perpetrating violence and chaos. And Welch thought that common sense and smaller government could break the liberal consensus and produce a better world. They were loyal to Robert Welch. They revered his felicity with words, his articulation of a conspiracy. Most believed his assertion that the communists controlled or were on the verge of controlling the world. Robert spoke for 17 hours. He offered 10 predictions for the future. He said there's going to be greatly expanded government spending, higher taxes, unbalanced budgets, wild inflation, greatly increased socialistic controls, and a centralization of power in Washington. There were aspects of the society that mirrored the tactics of the communists. They would use organized fronts to spearhead political causes. They would engage in letter-writing campaigns. They would use monthly bulletins. Members would inform headquarters of local chapter activity throughout the nation. Early on, joiners were urged to read conservative books and dedicate some of their time during the week to going to their local libraries to study the communist conspiracy. They would hear lectures. They would read and share the JBS magazine, American Opinion. So what made it both a unique and uniquely effective vessel for the furtherance of Welch's goals? The idea was to create a group that wasn't secret, like the Masons, the Rosicrucians, or the other groups we covered. Exhaustively. Last year, the JBS would not be secret, but rather anonymous. Though Miller notes this distinction eluded many critics. Another innovation was the idea of leveraging the tactics used by communists themselves to further the cause of limited government and anti-communism. For example, the JBS would create groups arranged around specific causes without foregrounding the involvement of the JBS itself. This is how, though at their peak in 1965 they boasted a maximum of 30,000 members, they were able to have such an outsized impact on everything from the 1964 Republican primary. Where JBS activists helped ensure the nomination went to conservative darling Goldwater, as covered in our political conspiracies shows. To later efforts against abortion, the Equal Rights Amendment, and other causes. You know, he would say that the John Birch Society is doing this when he's trying to get more support for the John Birch Society. But people pushing for lower tax relief in California, they don't know that they're engaged in some kind of a birch front. This was a particularly smart way to enhance your influence, especially when your group would eventually become synonymous with right-wing fringe lunacy. Yeah, we should probably deal with the whole lunacy thing. The 
first reason that Welch's nascent group drew the ire of mainstream America was that aforementioned letter about Dwight Eisenhower, which he had been privately circulating to hundreds of conservative readers for years by the time it became a scandal in 1960. So what was so weird about this Eisenhower letter anyway? Like, Welch and co. courted controversy. Why was whatever dipshit idea he had about Eisenhower such a big deal? Well, the main problem was this quote. My firm belief that Dwight Eisenhower is a dedicated, conscious agent of the communist conspiracy is based on an accumulation of detailed evidence so extensive and so palpable that it seems to me to put this conviction beyond any reasonable doubt. Yeah, that doesn't sound great. No, of course it sounds unhinged. And not just to you, me, and the Straniacs. It sounded unhinged to almost everyone who heard that phrase, and wasn't already a JBS member or sympathizer. It all began with a simple car ride in December of 1954. The conversation became quite serious because Welch suggested that Dwight Eisenhower was a communist. I mean, that's ridiculous. The man who planned D-Day, the grandfatherly figure who was elected twice in the 1950s. And this surprised one of his listeners so much that this friend asked Welch if Welch would be willing to put the comments in the form of a letter that he could study. And Welch agreed. On his return to Boston, he began to write the letter. It started off 9,000 words. But the letter takes off. Everybody in anti-communist circles wants to see the thing. Welch said that the letter had evolved into over 200 pages Within a short period of time, he still considered it a private, unfinished manuscript for limited confidential distribution. The problem is, he sends it to thousands of people. And it began the biggest controversy in the history of the John Birch Society. He becomes associated with calling Dwight David Eisenhower a communist from then on. He sent one to William F. Buckley. Unlike Welch, Buckley never believed that domestic communists, as opposed to foreign ones, were a great threat to America's survival. Buckley thought that it made the right appear to be cracking up. It was a disagreement among friends. Buckley had lauded Welch before this incident. It would dissolve into a feud. It's a crossroads of the movement. Do we go Buckley's way, which came to be known as respectable conservatism? Or do we go to the conspiratorial conservatism of Welch? I mean, it's almost very similar to what we see today in the United States, the big rift between doubters of the 2020 election and those who embrace reality. Welch insisted that because he had never actually formally published the book, he didn't feel the need to refine and edit his argument the way he would with his other books. Nobody bought this excuse. And in fact, Eisenhower is a dedicated conscious agent of the communist conspiracy was one of the two phrases that would permanently lodge in the public consciousness when it came to Welch and the Birchers. What was the other one? Why, the slogan you could read on the many billboards the society put up during the mid-60s. Impeach Earl Warren. Ah, the chief justice whose Supreme Court oversaw a series of milestone decisions that expanded a variety of rights in the United States. What was it that the Birchers hated about the guy? Pretty much everything. Here's a riveting excerpt from a 1964 JBS meeting where the true believers make their case. You all know we've been working for quite some time on securing the impeachment of the Chief Justice. And there are a variety of reasons for this. First of all, we firmly believe that he has violated his oath of office 
to protect, defend, and uphold the Constitution of the United States, and believe he has been doing quite the contrary. But more and more important and more serious, uh, serious import is the fact that the Chief Justice has, has been the leading advocate, <coughs> uh, setting the stage for the current uh, uh, series of racial riots that are now rendering this country apart. Uh, in addition, the general tenor of the, of the, of the um, Supreme Court decisions, particularly since 1954 thereabouts, have tended to uh, destroy the republic that our forefathers set up for us and converted into a mobocracy. Now, we didn't say it, but the communists themselves have publicly declared that one batch of decisions by the Warren-led Supreme Court have constituted the greatest victory of the Communist Party in the United States. Now, the other thing that uh, the court has done is to uh, take steps to remove uh, the spiritual foundation of our republic that is now unconstitutional for children to recite prayers in our public school or to read from the Bible. For Welch, the main issue was a series of decisions he saw as pro-communist. Warren had overseen the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which would desegregate by all deliberate speed public schools in the United States. Welch would call that decision the most brazen and flagrant usurpation of power that has been seen in any major court in 300 years. And he would relay that there have been credible reports that Warren himself was made chief justice to assure that the decision came off according to schedule. Again, the conspiracy theorists conspiring. But the JBS's blue book, the primary foundational document, didn't emphasize civil rights to a great degree. It observed only that the Kremlin was behind the civil rights revolution to divide the nation and embroil the country in civil war. Welch urged that the impeachment of Earl Warren would dramatize and crystallize the whole basic question of whether the United States remains the United States or it becomes transformed into a province of the worldwide Soviet system. It wasn't just about Brown versus Board of Education, argued Welch. Welch would cite the decisions in Pennsylvania v. Nelson. It upheld a state court decision which reversed the conviction of an American Communist Party member. While there's no doubt Welch genuinely hated decisions he saw as helping the commies, as you just heard, it's still hard to avoid a somewhat more cynical conclusion. The most singular and iconic decision the Warren Court issued was the landmark Brown v. Board of Education, which began the desegregation of U.S. schools, and which in turn effectively kicked off massive resistance from parents of kids in all-white schools across the country, and was the beginning of the huge backlash against civil rights that continued for decades. When these people, who outnumbered dedicated Birchers by maybe hundreds to one, saw Bircher-funded impeach Earl Warren billboards and join the crusade, they weren't thinking about the same things Welch was worried about. They wanted black kids to stay the fuck away from their kids' schools. And more importantly, Welch knew that's what they were focused on. In our conversation, Ted noted that to some extent, the impeachment movement, which was doomed to be completely ineffectual, as Welch knew, was designed to give JBS supporters a goal to aim at, regardless of how unattainable it was. Welch said that the drive to impeach Warren was an effort to give members something, however futile, to accomplish. And it was a response to a whole host of things that, according to Welch, uh, Warren had done to protect communists and government. As the book details, the just-doing-something aspect of being part of the society was a really important part of the appeal, especially to women coming to grips with the same modern domestic boredom that Betty Friedan identified in the feminist classic The Feminine Mystique. 
Just as millions of women poured their efforts into rectifying the gender inequalities of mid-century American life, those of a more conservative frame of mind joined the John Birch Society and poured their seemingly endless energies into, from their perspective, saving the free world. Miller quotes one woman who said, I just don't have time for anything. I'm fighting communism three nights a week. Betty Friedan said that there was a problem that has no name. Many housewives were lonely. Many people were going to their doctors and they were being subscribed. Mommy's little helpers. There was a significant amount of stress. This is the middle of the Cold War. As Michelle Nickerson has demonstrated, the conservative movement, especially for women, gave them an outlet. And so for women who are becoming part of the John Birch Society and fighting communism every night, attending the films in their neighbors' living rooms, reading Robert Welch's books. This serves as the other side of the 60s. It's a different form of the feminist movement. It would be Phyllis Schlafly who would pursue this activity in later years in her anti-ERA crusade, which Robert Welch was also involved in. When they joined Welch's group, members received a ready-made answer to their generalized anxieties about the modern world, the direction of their country, and their place in it. The situation, as the Birch Society concluded, was a sort of all-purpose, illogical, yet straightforward syllogism. Premise 1. The U.S. at the beginning of the Cold War was the unchallenged, unchallengeable, most powerful, most envied power in the world. We could do anything that we as a nation wanted, thanks to our unlimited influence over the other nations of the Earth. Well, that's ridiculous. What's premise two? Premise two is, for want of another word, reality. The U.S., though it indeed assumed an unprecedented level of power and influence in the post-war period, was not actually able to do whatever it wanted on the world stage. From getting outmaneuvered by Stalin over the post-war status of Eastern Europe, to our blundering involvements in both wars like Korea and Vietnam, and our ham-fisted and often horrifying attempts at regime change throughout the Third World, the U.S. proved no more all-powerful than the British, the Romans, or any other imperial and influential nation had been at any point throughout history. Conclusion For the Birchers, this reality was unacceptable. The U.S. was destined to remake the world in its image. So the only conclusion was, America's blunders and losses could only be explained as treason by those acting inside the country itself. Robert Welch shared a post-war belief in seemingly unlimited American capability. He went further than many liberal leaders and concluded that countries wanted to be like us. And if they didn't, it was our fault. For policymakers who realized that America was already maybe doing too much around the globe, from assassinations in Iran, South Vietnam, and Guatemala to covert wars. Welch's vision was downright dangerous. But like Welch, many Americans could reject the claim that the United States was doing its best, and they became some of his strongest followers. He didn't believe that there were errors in policymaking. There's no such thing as human fallibility. He liked detective stories. Everything had to fit that pattern in his head. He needed to see everything kind of connecting. Like, take the Bay of Pigs fiasco. He couldn't see that as the mistake of a president who never served in an executive position and took the advice from his aides. He saw it as part of a communist conspiracy, and that's how it was. Stalemate in Korea? Berlin Wall goes up, Cuba goes commie, it has to be the result of an enemy within, traitors in the U.S. government. After all, quoting the book, 
He believed that countries wanted to be like us, follow our example, and if they didn't, it was our fault. Malloy's book points out the centrality of a conspiratorial perspective to the Bircher worldview. Events big and small, from the Cold War and the rise of the Civil Rights Movement to the smear campaign against the society itself, were seen more clearly through a conspiratorial lens, Birchers believed. Conspiracies explained the admonishment of General Walker, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the Watts riots, and the inability of the United States to secure victory in the jungles of Vietnam. They made comprehensible, otherwise inexplicable reversals of fortune, such as the Bay of Pigs debacle or Barry Goldwater's disastrous election campaign of 1964. They accounted for and connected together such seemingly unrelated events as efforts to fluoridate the water supply, gun control legislation, and President Johnson's war on poverty, all examples of dangerous and malignant collectivism in Bircher's eyes. He also quotes a Bircher novelist named Elizabeth Linington, who nicely brings the threads of women's role in post-war society, as well as the combined sense of purpose and paranoia that participating in the Welch worldview could engender, into one passage. All these unaware people walking the streets, shopping, planning bridge club meetings, talking about where to go on vacation next summer, Linington writes, you want to scream at them because you know it's happening. The enemy is here and now. We're far, far down the road to enslavement. Listen to me. Stop and listen. None of these little things could matter less, because if you don't listen and find out and do something about it, by next year or the year after or the year after that, you and your bridge club will be sharing quarters in a concentration camp. Now, I imagine that this whole worldview sounds pretty familiar. What? You mean a group of people who are convinced that all that is good and holy in the U.S. is being stymied and ruined by a group of influential traders in government and society? A sort of deeply embedded state that is seeking to ruin the nation's status as a beacon of freedom and democracy? A group that gets together and puzzles over the clues left behind by these traitors and does everything they can to alert their fellow countrymen to this problem through political action? No, that doesn't sound like QAnon at all. Why do you ask? Exactly. And as the society's influence grew, particularly in certain ultra-conservative U.S. enclaves, it began to make headlines in the mainstream press. These were not positive headlines. Which brings us back around to the setting of one of our classic episodes, the city of Dallas in late 1963, where President Kennedy would soon meet an assassin's bullet. There was no love lost between President Kennedy and the Birchers on either side. Malloy quotes an interview Kennedy gave on the subject. He said, Well, I don't think their judgments are based on accurate information of the kinds of challenges that we face. I think we face an extremely serious and intensified struggle with the communists but I am not sure that the John Birch Society is wrestling with the real problems which are created by the communist advance around the world. Birchers and others, the president continued, should spend their time addressing the internal subversion that was going on in places like Vietnam and Laos, rather than concerning themselves with the loyalty of President Eisenhower, President Truman, Mrs. Roosevelt, myself, or someone else. This gives some important context. It's not like Kennedy and the other high government officials whom the Birchers decried were all a bunch of chill hippies who wanted to just get along with the menacing USSR. Like, coexist, bro. They were also obsessed with communism. They just wanted to focus on the places outside the US where the communists actually, you know, were. Getting back to Kennedy's fateful trip to the heart of Birch country, though, it so happens there's an absolutely excellent book that covers the influence of JBS-style thinking on the citizens of Dallas at the time, the provocatively titled Nut Country by one, let me see here, Edward H. Miller. You mean the same guy you've been interviewing all this time? Yes. 
Shamefully, dear listeners, I must admit that I had read and annotated the entirety of his Dallas book, then read the Welch bio, and then conducted the interview you're hearing throughout this section without ever realizing that the same man had written both books. I am what we call a doofus. Anyway, even though we've mentioned how crazy Dallas was during this period, Miller's book paints a far more detailed and shocking portrait of the conspiracy-riddled thinking that prevailed among many of its citizens. By the early 1960s, Dallas was a major power center for the JBS. The book's title comes from the story of an infamous Welcome Mr. Kennedy to Dallas newspaper ad posted on the day of the young president's fateful arrival by three members of JBS. The ad was anything but welcoming, attributing the city's success to conservative economic and business practices and accusing Jack of communist sympathies. Miller quotes Kennedy that morning, preparing for the day with his wife in their hotel room. How can people say such things? Kennedy asked his wife, who was donning a new pink Chanel dress. We're heading into nut country today, he muttered. The book is equal parts trenchant analysis and character studies of some of the goon squad comprising the ultra-right-wing of Dallas at the time. For an example of the former, it does a great job of explaining how anti-communism led moderate, small-business Republicans of the Midwest and urban South, who you might assume wouldn't go along with all of this crazy anti-commie talk, into something approaching Bircherism. As one oil man observed, we all made money fast. We were interested in nothing else. Then this communist business burst upon us. We were going to lose what we had gained. But as interesting as this material is, I know what you're here for. Batshit insanity. And the book's got a whole bunch. So here's a smattering. One of the richest and most influential Dallasites was H.L. Hunt, who it describes this way. Hunt was an eccentric who had nursed at his mother's breast till age seven. He liked to engage in a type of exercise that he called creeping. On the carpet of his office suite, he would crawl like an infant in order to develop what he believed to be a form of higher brain function. He was convinced that he could live forever and believed that he possessed a sixth sense. The book uses Hunt and others as examples of the Bircher style. When confronted with the fact that nine of ten Americans didn't want to leave the UN, for example, the idea of leaving the UN being a Bircher obsession, Hunt would respond with an endless barrage of facts that weren't, you know, factual. Miller explains, Ultra-conservatives compiled evidence of treason through a process of examining decisions made by American policymakers and presupposing that errors in judgment were conscious, intentional, and sinister. They combined this preoccupation with heaping up facts with a predilection for leaping to dubious conclusions. This heaping up facts is pure Welch. The Eisenhower letter had more than a hundred pages of footnotes, in spite of the fact that it was gibbering nonsense. And speaking of nonsense, there are so many great little quotes about Dallas's craziest citizens at the time that we're just going to provide them here with no other commentary. For example, after the assassination, some insisted that Kennedy was going to rise from the grave and become the Antichrist. You want more? Try this. Ultra-conservatives detested particular institutional and cultural manifestations of Dallas's increasing urbanity, including the new emphasis on mental health, dental health, and modern art. More, I hear you shouting? Okay. One ultra-conservative was horrified to hear another, Mrs. Ernest B. Foote, declare that Dallas papers supported Eisenhower because the papers were owned by Jews, and that Eisenhower himself was a Swedish Jew. Dana, can you give us a quick rendition of the famous Swedish Jew accent? That's a hard pass. Alas. Still more? Some wanted removal or expurgation of textbooks that referred favorably to integration, the United Nations or the folk musician Pete Seeger. So this is all in good fun, but it's important to remind you here that in spite of all the vitriol and heated rhetoric that originated with the Birchers and their allies around Dallas, JFK was shot by a dipshit 
who, if anything, would have to be considered a man of the left. That is dedicated commie and super asshole Lee Harvey Oswald. Yes, he was. No, no grassy knoll. No train hobos. No CIA plot. Three shots. Book depository. No bigger conspiracy. Consult our JFK episode for three and a half hours of proof. This was a real shock to everyone who understandably had assumed that if JFK was shot in Dallas, it would have to be a right-winger who did it. Again, Robert Welch never encouraged violence, but the same cannot be said for many of his fellow travelers. But of course, the political valence of the hateful and pro-violent sentiment in a place doesn't matter as much as does the black cloud zeitgeist itself. Miller quotes contemporary articles to this effect, with Fortune labeling the city hate capital of the nation, and suggesting that schoolchildren steeped in extremism cheered the president's death. Another newspaper noted, Mr. Kennedy had prepared a speech which reminded the people of Dallas that America's leadership must be guided by the lights of learning and reason. Dallas's answer, even before the speech was delivered, was to shoot John F. Kennedy. So you might assume that, in the wake of Kennedy's assassination, and the fact that everyone assumed a Bircher had done it, that the society might have taken a long, hard look in the mirror and decided to tone down the world-ending conspiracy talk? Now, you listen to this show, so you would not assume that. And sure enough, here are some quotes from an article in a Birch Society publication three months after the president's murder. Professor Oliver argued that the maxim, de mortuis nil nisi bonum, speak no ill of the dead, was a taboo for barbarians who indulge in tribal howling and gashing of cheeks and breast whenever a big chief dies or an eclipse portends the end of the world. No one paid such regard for Adolf Hitler, and he was certainly as defunct as Jack, and therefore presumably as much entitled to post-mortem consideration, Oliver observed. Rational men will understand that far from sobbing over the deceased, or lying to placate his vengeful ghost, it behooves us to speak of him with complete candor and historical objectivity. Jack was not sanctified by a bullet, he continued, before laying bare just what kind of historical assessment he believed such candor and objectivity should produce in great detail. As you can imagine, the article only got more insulting from there. And of course, all of this was accompanied by some of that good old racist religion. One of my best friends growing up had a mom who, though she was welcoming to all of his friends regardless of race, firmly believed the same thing that Dallas ultra-conservatives of the 60s maintained. Specifically, that black people were the descendants of Ham, the son of Noah who was cursed for seeing his father's nakedness after Noah got drunk in a post-flood celebration and passed out. This curse, it is said, darkened African skin to indicate their cursed status, which also required them to be servants of the other races. Seriously, where the fuck did you grow up, Jesuit? The Deep South, where time doesn't move forward at the same speed, unfortunately, Unicorn. To quote the book again, the biblical literalism of the ultra-conservatives went hand-in-hand with conspiracy, since in their minds, the greatest conspiracy of all was Satan's ongoing battle against Christianity. And one of the most important promoters of the eschatological version of the battle between the free world and communism was Dallas radio host and biblical literalist Dan Smoot, who per Miller saw the Cold War as merely an expression in the material world of the great spiritual struggle between, quote, the Christian forces of freedom and the atheistic forces of slavery. Eventually, Smoot's view of the conspiracy, that it was bigger and farther reaching than simply the struggle against communism, ended up heavily influencing Welch's evolving views. Dan Smoot worked for H.L. Hunt. He had his own show, The Dan Smoot Report, and Smoot argued that the real purpose of Cold War politics was to contain rather than defeat communism, and that the Council on Foreign Relations Smoot argued that CFR members wanted a one-world socialist system and sought the same aim 
as that of international communism. The CFR, Smoot concluded, was Washington's invisible government. Smoot would expound on this theory in his 1962 book, The Invisible Government. The book took a deep dive into the secret history of the Council on Foreign Relations. According to Smoot, the United States couldn't become a province in a one-world socialist system unless the American economy was first socialized, which it was through two wars. And through this socialization, which was well underway, a secret cabal of planners within the government intended to merge the political, social, economic, even cultural systems of the Soviet Union and the United States. I mean, it's all ridiculous, but there it is. These wild claims are going to influence and revolutionize anti-communist conspiracy theory. They no longer present the merger as a communist plot. Rather, Smoot said, a nefarious band of globalists and internationalists were striking at the very heart of American sovereignty through the CFR. Smoot's contribution was an important development in American conspiracy theory, not only in the 20th century, but as it turned out in the 21st. The invisible government was the first anti-communist conspiracy theory that targeted politically connected globalists without actually calling them communists. Americans were no longer completely buying into the idea of a monolithic communist conspiracy, though they were seeing conspiracies play out in their daily lives. So Smoot reinvigorates conspiracy for an age when conspiracies seem to be everywhere. And Welch is deeply influenced by Smoot. In 1963, he rewrites the Eisenhower letter, and he removes references to Eisenhower being a communist. And he calls Eisenhower a globalist and a member of the Eastern establishment. In many ways, you see the same thing going on with QAnon. We have today the folks who are running as QAnon candidates losing elections. They're not winning their primaries, but the Republican Party is taking a version of the QAnon conspiracy theory and they're lightening it up. They're using words like grooming. And they're using words like deep state, much like Dan Smoot did. That is a much more effective way of getting folks who are associated with the ideas of QAnon. As the 70s dawned, the number of hardcore card-carrying birchers steadily declined. More and more Americans saw them as dangerous fringe actors. Welch took a new approach. Impeach Warren was a thing of the past. Because Warren retired in 69. It had nothing to do with the JBS campaign. True, but Welch still thought he saw in that effort the seed of the JBS's future. After the Goldwater campaign, the John Birch Society was in trouble. The John Birch Society had become a joke, and it was impossible to get people to join the society. So he changed tactics, much in the way that Richard Nixon changed tactics. He embraced single-issue campaigns through ad hoc committees. He would oppose abortion on demand as an issue. He was an anti-ERA proponent. These ad hoc committees were able to capture a large swath of folks who were turned off by the John Birch Society, but wanted to participate in the single-issue campaigns which built the Reagan revolution. 
So the closing decades of Welch's life were a joyful crusade to defeat everything from expansions of civil rights to expansions of abortion rights to expansions of women's rights. For a guy who loved freedom, he, he wasn't real big on rights, was he? It is a bit of a conundrum, yes. And of course, he made it to the 1980s, when conservative poster boy Ronald Reagan became president, to the shock of pretty much the whole liberal establishment. You would think this would have been a delight to Welch, but wouldn't you know it, he had already decided decades before that Reagan wasn't a real conservative because of various compromise laws he signed during his time as California governor. Of course, inevitably, time came for Welch, as it will for all of us. He had a stroke in 1983. He had dedicated all his money to the John Birch Society. His wife had to sell the home because they just didn't have any money. During the later years in the 1970s, despite the popularity of the ad hoc committees, the John Birch Society is being run by a group of second raters and even third raters. And so the society begins to decline. The John Birch Society did indeed decline in the wake of its founder's death. But as Miller noted at the beginning of the book, Welch clearly left a major imprint on the world. As I hope we've demonstrated, the John Birch Society's worldview, that is, Welch's worldview, has been incredibly influential on the conspiracy landscape in which we find ourselves today. And so, as we finish our time with the man we've come to think of as QAnon's grandpa, we have one more fascinating, Bircher-adjacent, mid-century topic to cover. And that is our precious bodily fluids. Wait, what? While undoubtedly the Kubrick fans among us have already figured this out, this section is all about the water fluoridation conspiracy, one of those hardy perennials that, though it hasn't fully blossomed into the mainstream since the 1960s, still flowers periodically in the present day, as recent news reports will attest. Cleaning your teeth or poisoning your body? The controversial question of whether to keep fluoride in Collier County's water supply drawing dozens and dozens of people on both sides of the issue to today's county commission meeting. I now have no choice but to ingest this chemical, this neurotoxin, this hormone disruptor, because it's been done forever. Over 300 experiments, animal experiments, human experiments, lowering of IQ, etc., and what parent and what politician in their right minds would put their children's brains below their teeth? I think the whole topic of water fluoridation will sound completely different to you depending on your age. For example, I, as a withered husk of a man in his late 40s, remember that weekly, maybe bi-weekly? Anyway, throughout my first through fourth grade elementary education in the American South, all of the kids were presented with little quarter-full waxed Dixie cups every couple of weeks. Like a grammar school Jim Jones scenario, though in his case there was less cyanide in the cups and more of a high concentration of fluoride solution. 
Indeed, and I'm not sure my parents even had to sign a permission slip or any of that guff. The powers that be in the early 80s just decided that all of us needed a good, solid swish. And that was the name of the program, swish. A fluoride, lest our teeth rot out of our sugar-addicted heads. During the research phase, we confirmed that Tiny Jesuit has never received this sort of treatment, though I pretty much already knew that there was a precisely zero chance that a California school district would presume to give the kids fluoride, or for that matter, a goddamned aspirin or a band-aid or a stern talking to without a notarized permission slip. But back in the day, giving kids extra fluoride was a regular practice, and this was on top of the fluoride toothpaste that we good middle-class kids were brushing with twice per day. Plus, of course, we had fluoride in our drinking water, as is the case with the majority of municipal water systems in operation in the U.S. According to the CDC's latest statistics, 63% of U.S. residents received fluoridated water as of 2019, up from around 57% in 2000. You, like me, may have wondered, well, I'll let Dana Seinfeld ask this one. What is the deal with fluoride? I mean, it's a deadly poison, but it's also in our toothpaste and drinking water? This is a pro-enamel poison? Do we have any other poisons that are good for one part of our bodies, but kills the rest? Does cyanide give you fuller eyelashes? Does arsenic support joint health? Who decided it was okay to put poison in the drinking water in the first place? Who are the ad wizards who came up with this one? Whether your childhood was a long series of fluoride swishes or not, the one thing we know for sure is that when water fluoridation was introduced in the United States, the first, and in many areas, the only, people who had a problem with it were John Birchers, or their right-wing fellow travelers. For example, Miller's book quotes an article from the JBS organ American Opinion in which the author spun a tale about a scientist in California who had created a conformity serum derived from some sort of substance obtained from the minds of patients under psychiatric care. At that point, the scientist was using it only to control the minds of spiders. But once the arachnids were pacified, he'd eventually use it to create a serum that would lead to an agreeable human population, more amenable to the communist takeover of America. But we were talking about water fluoridation. Yeah, that's, that's in the next sentence of the article. Water fluoridation was also, she suggested, about capturing mines and bringing about Soviet occupation and eventual world government. She doubted that fluoride prevented cavities and argued that dentists would never support something that undercut their material interests. Now, confusingly, Robert Welch himself spoke out against the use of fluoride, but apparently not because of some bizarre mind-control conspiracy theory. Rather, he opposed it because it might be too effective. Hold the phone. Why would that be bad? Oh, because it would hurt the innocent dentist's livelihood. I mean, how are they supposed to make ends meet if everybody's teeth get stronger, Dana? Those drills and x-ray machines don't pay for themselves. What are you, a fucking commie? I withdraw my question. As well you should. So, a very brief history of how we decided to put fluoride in the water. It all dates back to the beginning of the last century. Dentists investigate a phenomenon in which everyone in certain small, isolated communities experienced brown, almost chocolate-appearing permanent stains on their teeth. It was referred to as Colorado Brown Stain. He's exercising so much self-control to avoid making an easy, disgusting joke here, and he wants all of you to know it. The struggle is real. The interesting part was that the dentists discovered that this unsightly stain was caused by fluoride in the water. 
They also discovered that the communities afflicted by this cosmetically upsetting but otherwise anodyne staining also had far lower rates of cavities than similar communities that didn't experience the staining. After a few decades of similar results provided scientists with increasing evidence that a very, very small amount of fluoride in water provided anti-cavity benefits without making your teeth look like the German exchange student from The Simpsons, Don't make me run! I'm full of chocolate! The government started making plans to test the benefits of artificially adding fluoride to community water supplies and observe its effects on dental health. The first test case was the city of Grand Rapids, Michigan, in 1945. The results indicated significant reduction of cavities among the population, which, when combined with other domestic and international tests, convinced the U.S. Public Health Department to make fluoridation official policy by 1951. Over the decades, it became more and more widely adopted, to the point that now two-thirds of U.S. residents get fluoridated water from their taps, as we just noted. Why isn't it 100% if it's U.S. policy? You can mark that one down to federalism, the governing paradigm enshrined in our Constitution that gives broad leeway to local and state jurisdictions to make decisions like these. The federal government doesn't mandate fluoride in municipal water supplies. It just encourages it. And in fact, while a number of countries around the world fluoridate their water today, many other countries have opted not to. And the amount of fluoride added by those countries that do varies significantly. Also, back in the 50s and 60s, this was a much more urgent issue, as there weren't really other ways that the average person's teeth would come in contact with fluoride. However, by the 1970s, essentially all toothpaste sold in the U.S. It's 95% for your sticklers out there. Contained fluoride, and so the benefits of fluoridating water have, over time, become increasingly marginal. At this point, there's significant disagreement about whether or not including fluoride in water has a big impact on adults, though the evidence that kids benefit, especially in terms of cavities in their baby teeth, is stronger. It's one of those things that we're already doing, and it has at least a marginally positive impact, and doesn't cause much or hurt anybody, so we've decided, for the most part, to keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> 